Advanced After Combat. All right, so this is the Advanced After Combat podcast. This is a podcast about wargaming, uh, our experiences playing war games, and generally, I don't know stuff. So this is a this is a podcast brought to you by myself, Dave, uh, my co-host Jason. Hello, and uh, our mystery host, who is selected from the guild each month. And this month, our mystery host is Doug. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Okay, so uh, Doug, uh, you've been selected by a very careful panel of uh, algorithms mixed with oracles and drunken mutterings and and random selections from the uh, list of the guild on BGG. I won't go into the technical aspects of the selection process because that might ruin it. It's um, very technical. So, welcome aboard. Thank you very much. Uh, were you pretty excited about being selected as the guest host? Excited enough. <laughs> Um, did, did you tell your wife about it? She is aware that's what we're doing here, and um, she's pretty much convinced I've hit ten on the nerd cred scale at this point. She, she wasn't super. Yeah, she wasn't super impressed. I'm. I'm not going to get laid because of this. I'll tell you that. <laughs> wow. I actually think I get laid less because of the podcast. So I think yeah. that's that's pretty much part because of the course. It, it takes time away from the family, and that's that's a negative in the in the mom book. Yes, I, that's what's going on tonight as well. Yep. So, uh, Doug, a couple quick questions we wanted to ask. First, right off the bat, uh, what's your bench press? Uh, today or best ever? Uh, recent, most recent bench press. Shoot, if I'm lucky if I get 120 up anymore. Wow. That's solid. That's no plates. <laughs> that's Pretty much. Uh, how about favorite war game? Currently, what's your favorite war game? My favorite war game right now is probably still an old classic, the Russian campaign. Uh, what war game kind of got you into war game? Like, kind of, how did you get into war gaming? Did you have the war gaming experience as a kid, with then a hiatus, and then getting back in as you were older, or like, kind of, have you been a solid war gamer ever since you were young, or what? So I'm actually a second generation war gamer. My dad, who uh, was a West Point uh, alum. Uh, got into wargaming in the 60s with the old classic Avalon Hill games and introduced me to them kind of when I was in my early 7, 8, 9, 10 range. We played Stalingrad, Battle of the Bulge. A lot of those games graduated to some of the victory game stuff. We broke out Vietnam on the dining room table for about six months at one point when I was in high school, which my mother loved a lot. Uh, and I think like a lot of folks went to college, found beer, girls, video games, uh, and only recently got back into the hobby probably about three years ago. So does your dad still war game? So he doesn't anymore. He's, uh, he's been busy working and doing lots of other things. And actually, he and I have, for the last 15 years or so, have played in an online Stratomatic football league that started in 1975 as a tabletop Very league. Nice. Uh, which is pretty spectacular. And I actually just sort of tried to rope him back in recently. Um, he happened to just come over one day while I had something laid out on the table. And it was sort of like, what's that? And I was like, it's wargaming that still exists. It's actually, you know, now, now, was, that, was that an accident or did you have it kind of out like, hey, oh, uh, oh, well, how funny you would ask about this. Let's go over and give, let me give you a tour. <laughs> it, it was actually a happy accident, but um, I got him to buy a copy of Washington's War. And we're going to try playing a little bit of Vassal or face-to-face uh, here in the next couple of months. So hopefully I can rope him back in. Yeah, Very because nice. there's some there's some old 
oldies but goodies out there, but let's be honest, I mean, the new games now look great compared to the way the old games looked. I mean, the graphics and the Vietnam holds up pretty well. I mean, a lot of them, I think, it's got to be kind of impressive for a guy who played in the past to come in and see some of the newer games. Yeah, I took him down and showed him the closet where I had built out a bunch of shelves to put everything. And it definitely looked a lot different than I think what he was expecting it to look like because the production value is so much higher than it used to be. Now, you broke out the games? You just showed, brought them down there to admire your like bookshelf building, your furniture <laughs> building ability? or Well, we, mostly it was to show him the games. My furniture uh, building ability is pretty much zero. So it was more about just breaking out a couple, showing him what the, you know, the, the boards look like, the pieces look like. And I, I think that was enough to at least intrigue him enough to dive back in. That'd be pretty so, cool. Yeah, so are there any possibilities there? Or? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, he just got his copy of Washington's War in the mail like two or three days ago, and so he's going to crack open the rules, and we're going to try and throw him into the vassal pool, which, you know, anytime you deal with uh, modern-age computer technology, there's always a, a risk that uh, I'll spend more time trying to get him to figure out how to get it to work. Uh, well, if, if you else, need help, but... just let, let Dave know. Yeah, Dave will be able he, he can to usually walk you through it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm your technical expert. I'll help you with your uh, your mumble server. With all the push, all the pushing to talk. Uh, let's just say it may not have fallen far from the tree. <laughs> well, I mean that's pretty awesome, though. I mean, does your dad live near you? Could he become like a regular gaming partner for you? Or is that why you're looking at the vassal option? No, he's actually uh, local. He's like probably ten miles up the road from me. But between our work schedules and other things, uh, you know, I travel a lot, and he's a trialer, so he's in various things all the time. So. Vassal was more just an ability for us to play by email just to keep things going. But yeah, definitely face-to-face is an option. That's, I mean, with my dad, my dad's huge into history, and like he's always he's been a big reenactor, and I've always tried to get him into the war games and just, nope, doesn't click with him. Like For a guy who's so into military history, it's so weird that my dad, so it's kind of cool that you're able to kind of encourage your dad kind of as, as somebody who got you into it and and then now maybe you can get him back into it. That'll be funny to watch him kind of progress through the new games. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be cool. cool. It'll be really cool. But don't tell him about the podcast because I'd feel bad. I don't think this would work for him. <laughs> no, I, I actually I did mention it to him because we had actually stopped by his house on the way here. And the missus mentioned that I was going to be on a podcast. He's like, you're going to be on a podcast? And so I explained the whole thing. So he probably will end up listening at some point. Very nice. One way or the other. Yeah, My in-laws are here a, now. Probably not very, a proud moment for us. No. Hey, Doug's dad. <laughs> yeah. Well, well yeah, there you go. Give a shout out. We're always not looking for new listeners. So, so Doug, right now, what's your big hot game that you're playing? So I am playing a ton of Empires of the Sun. I've got uh, a play-by-email of the tournament game going and three others by email going. Uh, so that's probably the hot one right now. Very nice. Yeah, I was going to ask you when your first sexual experience was, but now I feel weird because I know yeah, your dad's is clean, so I don't think I'm going to do that one. If we That's could weird. leave some of those out of today's podcast, that'd be swell. Okay. All right. Hopefully we'll, we'll the quiz sure. is nice and embarrassing, though. Hey, speaking I'm of the sure quiz. Speaking of the quiz, we have a quiz. Bum, uh, I just wanted to say, Doug, and for the benefit of your dad, uh, the, the, the quiz is optional. You don't have to take it. So... Just want to let you know, you don't have to feel obligated to take it because some people feel it borders on abuse. But basically, it's just a quiz about your military history knowledge and uh, maybe some some way how wargaming might help you learn a little bit about military history. So, Doug, are you up for taking the quiz? 
I figure I can't do worse than Ralph, so sure. <laughs> yeah, that last one was pretty rough. I thought Ralph did okay. Did Ralph not do that well? No, he did fine. It's just you mean you only get it's hard to get a lot of them right, so it's the worst one ever forced us to literally delete the podcast episode. So yeah, it never was worse. released. It was pretty bad. <laughs> wow. We were worried we might be sued. <laughs> I hereby release you from any claims uh, for my failure on the, the quiz. Very nice. Yeah, you say that now. Let's wait till the other quiz. Okay, so for the record, uh, then, Doug, you're agreeing to take the quiz. Right. I agree. Okay, so this quiz was prepared by Braxton, our intern. So uh, we don't have anything. We can't be blamed for it or... And generally what it is, it's going to be a bunch of questions. There's going to be, there's four questions. So there'll, there'll be a series of answers. It looks like groups of five. The uh, last group of five are the bonus answers. But as we've learned, that really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so, they're just, they're just more questions. Yeah. They're bonus. They're at the end. Hey, it's bonus. <laughs> they're at the end. Exactly. More embarrassment, less cost. Extra credit. So without further ado, let's get started with the quiz. Doug. During the first phase of the Tet Offensive, January to March 1968, in the Vietnam War, several U.S. and Arvin installations were attacked by Viet Cong and NVA forces. Name five U.S. or Arvin bases or installations that were assailed. Uh, okay. Uh, Da Nang. Correct. Huey. Correct. Saigon. Correct. Quezon. Correct. Contum. You're right. That's five out of five. Way to go. Very nice. There was a few guesses in there. Do I have to go through like all the ones? Because there's like a bunch of them. No, there's, there's a ton. You're good. Okay, that's five out of five, Jason. Are you keeping the score? I, I have it recorded. Because I dropped my pen somewhere. I don't know where it is. For posterity. Question number two. General George McClellan launched the Peninsular Campaign in the spring of 1862 in an attempt to capture the Confederate capital at Richmond. Name five battles that were part of this campaign. Well, here's where I'm going to go. O for five, probably. Mm-hmm. Was Cold Harbor? Cold Harbor. Cold Harbor. Uh, you're about two years too early. Eight, this is 1862, the Peninsula Campaign under, yeah. under McClellan. Not right. And don't, try some more don't, try to, don't try to summon your army of fish creatures. I can hear them all <laughs> swirling around you. He's calling in the, calling in the Air Force. Yeah, I'm going to have to just pass because I can't think of any from, from the Peninsula campaign. Really? You can't, you can't name any of them? I can't. I can't think of none's coming to my head. Yorktown? Um, I have to tell you that all answers cannot be – they have to be stated as, as affirmative <laughs> statements. They cannot be wrong. <laughs> I, I will say Yorktown is an affirmative statement. You are correct. Yorktown is one answer. Nicely done. And feel free to say that you give up and you don't know the other five. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give up on the other five. Yeah, so uh, 
Beaver Dam Creek, Drury's Bolt, Bluff, Gaines Mill, Garnet and Goldings Farm, Glendale, Eltham's Landings, Hampton Roads, Malvern Hill, which is a, a known one, Oak Grove, Seven Pines is known, Savage Station, also known, White Oak Swamp, don't know that one, Williamsburg, that's a good bet if it's New Yorktown, but you got Yorktown, so you're one for five. Yeah, Malvern Hill would have been the only other one that would have come to my head at some point. Yeah, what are those, the Seven Days Battles? Are those the battles where Lee, like, basically battled McClellan back down the peninsula? I think it's the Seven Days Battles. There's a bunch of them in there. So right now you are uh, six for ten. Still getting a D. The Roman Empire's Nervan Antonine dynasty from 96 to 192 AD produced what? Niccolo Machiavelli called Rome's five good emperors because of the stability and integrity they brought to the empire. Name these five good Roman emperors. Now we've really hit an area I don't know anything about. Ancients is the one place where I don't play or read. Uh, so I'll go Octavian. No. Any other guesses? I got no other guesses. Octavian's like, Julius Caesar wouldn't be in there because he's poor. Yeah. Okay, so the answers are Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, Marcus Aurelius. So. Yeah, I would have had a hard time pulling any of those. So uh, six for 15. So remember, this is all Braxton's fault. If you have any problems with this. <laughs> next, next time I see him, I'll, I'll smack him for the Roman questions. Okay, the bonus question. So this is bonus, right? So this should be easy. This is bonus is like just going to give you some icing on top of your cake, right? This is it. Exactly. I, it can't be anything more than this icing. It's this making point. you look good. At the <laughs> exactly. I actually think it's going to be better for you. So uh, the bonus question is: During World War One, both Central and Allied powers used chemical weapons in an attempt to break the static front of trench warfare. At least twenty types of poison gas were used during 1914 to 1918. Name five of the most common used poison gases during this time. Uh, phosgene? Yes. Mustard? Yes. Ammonia? Don't know. <laughs> Not listed as an answer. Not listed, okay. Um, cyanide? No, uh, yes, I'll give that to you. Hydrogen cyanide. So you've got mustard, phosgene, and hydrogen cyanide. Sulfuric acid? Did they really use sulfuric acid? I have no idea. That I'm seems a, like I'm a really inefficient. That seems like a really inefficient <laughs> method of, of using that. That was for up close. <laughs> if it landed on like one guy, like, <laughs> really it, him it up. burns. <laughs> it's slowly burning me. It's messing up my complexion. <laughs> the terror would scare everyone else away. They're like, yeah, that guy. That guy had really good skin. He used to. Uh, like, like, yeah, I'm committed to the war, but not that committed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think those are probably the three I'm gonna that are gonna come to the top of my head. And and I sense this is because it's there's only five answers. So I the yeah, that was, was number five. He was scraping the bottom of the barrel <laughs> with this question. So that usually makes for our most contentious questions. Um, the other two that you can guess were tear gas. Oh, and, and chlorine. Oh, yeah. Uh, chlorine. You know, it keeps pools clean. It's our friend, but it'd also be our deadly enemy. Really hurts the eyes. 
So that's three out of five for that one. So I'm thinking you got 10 out of 20 or nine out of, I think nine out of 20. Nine out of 20. Nine out of 20. You know, and that, like, if, if you were studying for, like, a test at, like, a California public school, yeah, that'd be a failure. But, I mean, I think for the podcast, I think, yeah, it's, it's kind of a success. I mean, it's got to be, be in the middle of the curve, right? It's middle oh, of the pack, sure. probably. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in any academic environment, including, like, the most, the, the least strenuous, that would be an abject failure. But, I mean, in this environment, I think it's okay. I think you did okay. Thank you. <laughs> Get in the California public school system, you know. Yeah, even in the worst public school, this would be a failure. But I think still you should feel good about yourself. Yeah, even like the hippy-dippy pass-fail, this is a failure. But for us, you're doing pretty good. But my yeah, evaluation like, at Santa Cruz would be excellent. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the hippie teacher would call your parents and then be like, yeah, you know, he's a nice kid, but seriously, he needs to work on some shit because this was pretty bad. Even by our he's standards. a nice kid. <laughs> But, but, Doug, I think you should feel good about your performance. It was okay. I didn't name a general on the opposite side of a war or anything crazy like that. So I, I came out clean. Yeah, there was nothing embarrassing. Yeah, I agree. I would describe it as workmanlike. That was good. <laughs> All right. So uh, that's it for the fun part of the podcast. Uh, now we get into the boring, more serious parts. Time to get down to business. Do uh, do you guys have reviews that you want to do? Just generally, like getting feel like Jason. Do you have a review? I do. Yeah. And Doug, do you? Have I'm a trying review? to participate. I was going to go ahead and do a little review of Empire of the Sun since I spent so much time playing it recently. All right, cool. Well, um, before we do that, I want to do a talk about a date I went out on with my wife. With your really wife, is a good part of the Ashley Madison scandal. No, no. Oh, dude, that's so funny. No, I'm not involved at all with Ashley Madison. That is not something. But it's funny because it turns. My out- wife is so obsessed with that. I'm like, I know, I know for a fact you've looked for my for my email address. And I said, it, which is pointless because you know I'm too smart to actually use any email address that you know that that you would know about well, she seriously. said oh no you have to you have to pay for it so i know you wouldn't go on there like, like, oh, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't realize you had to pay no, for but, it she uh, said you're but, too cheap you're too cheap to cheat on me like that but guys can't set up like gmail or hotmail accounts they use like their military work addresses or whatever seriously, seriously. this is the part that is so yeah. stupid about the whole thing like it is not rocket scientist rocket science to get another email address yeah they're they're free yeah i didn't realize you had to pay for it so and especially that's, like uh, when they when they said that uh like out of out of all the women's accounts on the thing like maybe like five percent of the women's accounts were real. <laughs> yeah, they had like, bots like responding most of uh, the other emails. Like it's terrible. Yeah, because you're like, that's yeah, gross. I'm gonna pick a girl that I want to be with. I want to pick a woman who's already with a guy and is such a skank that not only does she want to <laughs> cheat on her husband, she wants to cheat with another person who's with somebody else who's also married. Yeah, because yeah, that person's probably yeah. not very sexually active. You know, she probably doesn't have a bunch of diseases or whatever. Like. <laughs> That's that's exactly so, the kind of person I want to get tangled up with. Yeah, the whole premise is baffling if you think too much about it. But there was like a, I, I saw there was a San Antonio police captain who like killed himself. Like there's been a bunch of suicides based on people getting caught on this. 
Well, I imagine there are you guys who have had to have some rather unpleasant conversations the last few weeks. Like one, oh, of, the, sure. one of the Duggar kids. Did you see one of the Duggar kids nah. was on it? Josh, Josh Duggar. Yeah. Josh Duggar. Oh, that, yeah, like, that guy doesn't have enough problems. Exactly. And and they gave him a harder time for that than touching his sister. Uh, yeah, it's ridiculous. The whole thing's great. It's disgusting. Anyway. So anyway, I, date night. So I went out on date night and uh, – I took my wife out. We dropped off the kids. And have you ever been to these movie theaters where uh, there's this IPAC movie theater where uh, you don't, they don't have, like, I think Greaves had been to it before. They have lazy boy chairs and you can kind of sit back and you get your own private mm-hmm. chair and they have a waitress that comes to you and serves you at the chair. Yep. Yeah, they have one in the city. Sundance has one in the city that, that works like that. Dude, it's incredible. Like, I don't know if I could ever go to another movie again. Like, you literally walk in the movie theater, and they're like, they, they're like, oh, you're here? Yeah, they serve you. Yeah, they're like, food. they're like, go downstairs, the concierge, she'll meet you, take you to your chairs. There's a lounge and a restaurant. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's an attendant, like a flight attendant button you press on your table. And she comes down, she's like, can I get you something? And you're like, yeah, I'd like a, a gin and tonic, and my wife would like a beer, and like all during the movie, they're coming and doing drink service. It was incredible. It's fantastic. It, it was it was like twenty nine bucks a seat, a little bit expensive. We went to yeah, see, that's uh, a little pricey. We went to see Trainwreck straight out of Compton. Oh. No, Trainwreck. I'm not going to see straight out of Compton. Not the movie theater. I saw it. It was great. I'll see it in the security of my own home bunker. <laughs> but uh so you saw train wreck that's the jake gyllenhaal movie no it was, no it was the one with uh it's, amy it's schumer a, yeah amy schumer, amy schumer. It was a, oh, a romantic oh, comedy oh, yeah. with amy schumer dude it was great we had a great time Very but nice. anyway so before we went to the movie theater we go to this place called the hot dog house and it's like uh kind of like a uh hot dog place fancy hot dog place and like a microbrewery so there's a long line and uh, you get they have like really these updone hot dogs, like eight dollar hot dogs, but they're really great and brats and everything. And they've got all these beers you can do. And so there's this gigantic line out the place. And uh, so basically, we're waiting in line. We wait in line. And we get up to where we're like like maybe the second or third people in line waiting. And like we've been basically looking at the menu the whole time. And the fucking guy up at the register is like doing beer samplers, like. Like the way the, the register gal like cashiers like basically he's like trying to oh I don't know if I want that beer like before he orders there's like fucking fifty people waiting in line. So I said to my wife and I'm like I'm like, is that guy fucking sampling beers? I said, What the fuck? I said, if if you get a beer you don't like, you just fucking chug it, you be a man, and then you get back That's in right. line later and drink your exactly. fucking beer. I said, Is he worried he's gonna miss buy on a six dollar beer? So and I'm saying all this stuff to my wife. So we get back. We go up there order. I said, no, I know exactly what I want. We want this beer, this beer, this hot dog, this hot dog. And we get our stuff. And I'm like, tell my wife. I'm like, yeah, I said, I should have said something to that guy. You know, and she goes, oh, no, they heard everything you said. Like, <laughs> nice. She's like, she's like, you were so loud. There is no way. She goes, I will guarantee you that guy's wife. She was looking right at you when you're like, any real man would just order a beer. So if you're in a line with like 20 people in it and you get up to the front and you're not sure whether you want to try the uh, the buttfuck beer lager or the heaven juven juven jager, just take just a Just try it. Get the just fucking really get, the, get the pint of beer. Don't do samplers while there's 40 people waiting behind you in line to get their food. Or so. order something where you, you have, have like, 20 minutes. Like, come on. 
If you get a beer, get on the internet you can and find one that's it, lo- you like a lager, you like a stout, you like an IPA. Get one of those, and then you try it, and you're like, oh, this is a little bit too hoppy for me. What do you do? Dump it on the floor or throw it in the trash? No, you drink <laughs> the thing and you just get a different one. It's beer. How bad can it be? So I thought that was, I, and I honestly thought that I was not the rude one in that situation. I thought they were the rude ones in that situation. For sure, I was just yeah, you were in the right. I let them know that they were being rude, not realizing it. <laughs> right. I've been more that way since the baby was born. I'm on like high alert and just a complete asshole lately, which is a lot of fun when we go out to dinner because people are like, "Oh, that baby's too young to be." You know, they're talking to somebody else at their table. That baby's too young to be outside yet. Like, yeah, we didn't ask. Uh, this isn't your kid, so oh, with like the sun or the yourself. heat or something, they're worth the sun. Well, it's just in general, just oh, you're because he was a week old, and you could tell. I mean, he's tiny. Like, oh, we, I, I wouldn't take my baby outside of the house before six weeks. Well, I have shit to do, so well, I'm, I'm willing to wait in line for shit. But not when people like the other. It's it's one of those things like when people wait in line and you're waiting in line. Hey, I get it. You're waiting. But then like we've been all staring at the same menu for like 20 minutes, and then the guy gets up there. And he's like, "Let me see." I'm like, "Are you fucking kidding me? We've been staring at this menu." <laughs> like they get up there, they're like, "Oh, now it's my time to shine." Like I'm gonna, oh, sh- yeah. I'm gonna schmooze with the cash. Oh, how long have you been working here? I'm just like, there's like 50 of us. You were one of us like two minutes ago. I don't know. <laughs> It's like the jerk off in the bridge toll line. And you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and finally gets it. Then he pulls out his wallet or purse and tries to find it. Or, or yeah, right. Exactly. Or the, the lady, or the the lady at the grocery store who is up at the front and then starts writing the check. Like, you didn't know who to make the check out to? You're at fucking Albertsons. Right. Like, you couldn't and you're writing a check the- in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's actually the thing. Like, seriously, you're writing a check? <laughs> and Doug, hey, do you have water conservation up where you're at? Are they on you uh, guys with the water? No, they haven't been too bad. I'm in an area that has its own reservoirs that fortunately were mostly full after the rain. So we've been sort of spared from a lot of that. But they, they get all you know, uppity about watering lawns and, and that kind of stuff. How, how about you, Jason? Are they like big with the water with you guys? Oh, we have plenty of water. See, like there's it's they're weird. super aggressive out here. Like it's getting weird. Like I'm only allowed to water. Like they do it by street sides. I thought it was a California law. I don't know how Doug doesn't. Doug, you're in California, right? Yeah, I'm just north of San Francisco. Like, I thought they passed a law that said everyone had to do water conservation. If they did, they didn't send me the memo. Well, we've got we've got a rule where I can only water on Tuesday and Friday, and even then I can't do it between 9 and 5. So I can water on Tuesday and That's Friday crazy. between 5 p.m. and 9 in the morning. So, like, and they run these commercials. I'm not joking. These commercials are like, only you can control water conservation. They're like, it's for California's good, but the state isn't enough to enforce it, so we need your help. If you th- see things, you should report them. You and the state together nice. can protect California. Big, big brother. Rat on your name. Yeah, I'm like, lovely. Yeah. Stasi. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Stasi. Yeah, Only you can, can protect the state. <laughs> it's, like, it's totally crazy, these commercials. Wow. So we're driving down the street, uh, down my hill, and we have like a Chinese family that lives down. And I only say it because uh, he, it's maybe he looks like he's not like Chinese American. He looks like he's Chinese because he is out on his driveway hosing it down with his hose, which is like 
Oh, very might nice. be punishable by death in Southern <laughs> California. And I'm like, I told my wife, I said, we need to tell that guy not to do that. Like, he's not allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's not allowed. He's in danger. What's he doing? It's like so crazy. You might as well be murdering <laughs> someone out reported. there. I'm like, you might as well be circumcising one of your kids out on the driveway. I mean, you're not allowed to hose down your driveway with a hose. It's so against the rules. Black bag. Get a broom, sir. Get a broom. I I almost pulled up and told him, like, dude, you can't do that. Just like, I don't want that. But apparently, it's a $500 fine if they walk around. And they've been walking around neighborhoods citing people for it. So. Do you get a cut of it if you report him? Because you might want to get in on that action. <laughs> well, that's that's how they enforce. They had this stupid uh, California hazardous materials law that they passed that basically said they had to post uh, anywhere that there was some kind of hazardous material involved in construction or anything. And then later on, it was discovered that maybe every single thing ever built in the history of California may have these chemicals. So. Basically, every building wow. you ever see, every structure will have this stupid sign on it that says, like, warning, like like the gas stations have them and apartment buildings have them. Uh, and they had kind of an enforcement deal where if they didn't put it up and you reported them, you would get a small percentage of the fine. It's not bad. And, and as a result, like, every single thing ever made in California now has that, that thing on it. Like, like Doug, if you go to a gas <laughs> pump, you'll see it has, like – Oh, like, yeah. It's like SB95 or something, and it says it on yeah. it. Like, warning, I think I've got furniture that has that on there. Yeah, a lot of, yeah. A lot of stuff has it. They're all over. I everything. bought a chair, and it says, this contains chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with my state that it doesn't know about cancer? Nope, it's everything. Basically everything. It, it contains Every restaurant you go into, every gas station, every everything practically has one of those signs. But, but they enforced it by using one of those whistleblower things where if you reported that someplace didn't have it, then you would get a percentage of the fine for it. So it's a slippery slope. Yeah. So that's, that's my life right now. I'm, I'm in the middle of a water conservation state. So, um, yeah, we should be, and we have grass in our front and backyard and it, it bothers me, but I still water it every day. Do you guys get your I'm water from the Colorado? Like where do you get your water? From? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. And there's lots of it. So Jason, what games have you been playing? Um, strangely enough, not much lately. You've been playing the, the baby, baby game? Thing. <laughs> the yeah, crying game? Yeah, really. I was like, <laughs> yeah, the crying game, exactly. I, I honestly thought like, oh, it's not going to affect that much of my time. This little thing has taken over everything. So I have Mage Knight set up, um, and I've, I've played one game of it in the last month, um, but it's... He's yeah, he's taken over everything. And then when I get any downtime, I just want to sit and read, like just quiet and read. So it's been a while since I played anything, and it'll probably be another month or so before I really dive into anything else. Now, have you have you been off from work? Uh, no, I I took about a week off um, because it was she had so many complications, um, and then I worked from home a couple of days, went back into the office two days last week, and then I'll be in the office uh, two days this week, and I'm working from home the rest. So. Uh, it's it's nice that it's flexible, so I get to stay home and kind of help out. But yeah, it's been uh, birthing babies is a young man's game for sure. I'm too old and tired for this shit. Yeah, just the sleep deprivation alone, I couldn't handle it. No, it's crazy. Constantly, yeah, the baby, under, the baby cries. You have to nudge your wife to wake her up to go get the baby. I mean, it's exhausting. The whole thing is just completely exhausting. <laughs> 
I don't even hear it. I just get the. I, I can feel the glare. I don't actually hear the baby. I just he- feel her glaring at me from from her nursing chair. Oh, like it's been fun. Bitter. Like, can could you ask her? Can yeah. you nurse yeah. somewhere else? You're bothering. <laughs> <laughs> could you take that somewhere else? Well, so her two of her sisters had babies four months ago and three months ago, and one of them was in town last weekend, and she said her husband sleeps in another room because she was waking him up too often at night with the baby. It's like, wow, that guy, that guy has balls. Boy, seriously, how did he pull that off? That's crazy. Well, well my rule, my I, rule I still is sleep always, right there. if you can hear the kid crying, there's too many doors open in the house. <laughs> so that's, need to close some more doors. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's still in the bedroom with us. He's only, up. Oh, you're off the rails. Not then. even three weeks yet. Sorry, buddy. You're yeah. off the rails. That kid, he yeah. needs to be in his own room. You're, you're in for a long Pretty haul. soon. It doesn't sound very baby. We'll Are you doing the baby wise or no? Do the check out baby wise. Not yet. Did you have you done yeah. that at all? Are you familiar with that? Baby. That's what I did with my son. Okay. Yeah, because my ex let my daughter sleep with her the whole time I was in, in Iraq, and when I got back, there was so many problems trying to get that kid to sleep in her own room. So with my son, I was like, nope. Yeah. Get that kid yeah, away. Baby wise, the way to go. Yeah. It's been fun though. Have a couple. Vassal and Rails games going on, but n- nothing set up at home. Oh, that's right, though. You guys are doing some kind of Rail game. How's your Rail game going? It's going well. It's my turn right now. I haven't taken it in. I'm really slow getting to all my turns. Um, I think I'm probably in the in the lower half. Um, I kind of lost the thread of that game f- for a little bit, but yeah, it's been fun. I, I don't even There's know. There's some how, smack talk. How, which how, is, how which does is the game good. even work? I don't even understand how the game works. Uh, it's too... It's, I mean, you, you buy stock and then you operate a railroad. You're trying to get shit to, from to, A to, to B so you can sell it or what? No, you just kind of have routes that the, that the trains run and then you try to buy stock and dump stock on other people. It's They're fairly complex um, and I, I, I lost the thread. It's fun though. They're a blast. Yeah, but it person. seems like you were at the, they're they're long. I thought you were like the guy who knew how to play that game, and you were kind of like sharing the game a little bit. Yeah, kind of. Okay, <laughs> I was supposed to. Yeah. All right. Mike knows how <laughs> so to play. So everyone else and, lost. And Jesse knows too. how to play. No, I think they're they're doing pretty well. I got I got a company dumped on me and didn't start with a company, so I was kind of I started off in a bad way. I made a bad move. And it's one of those games that if you don't start strong, it can end up being a long game for you. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't have any understanding of what any of those games are about though. That's it. They're fun. Sounds great. Yeah. They're different. You've done a great job explaining it. Thank you. uh, Yeah. If, if we were actually going to talk about it, I could really nerd out, but uh, I don't, I don't want to get there. Either. All right, Doug, what are you playing? Let's please, please try to save us from that, that foray into the real business. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a real game. So I'm playing real games. I got, as I said, I got three play by emails of empire of the sun going. I'm playing uh Washington's war by email. How do you keep track of where you are? Yeah. Like I can barely follow where I am in one game at a time. I think I, I bit off more than I can chew with the third one, just because when I open them up now, it takes crazy. me 10 minutes to go like, okay, which game is this? Which yeah, side which am I on? Which year is it? Because we're playing 
I'm playing one forty two scenario, one full campaign, and one forty three. Oh yeah, that's, and so that's, it's, that's it's just that's too much. So what are the victory conditions? Like I have to remind myself every time. Like what am I even trying to do? I, I've, and, got, I've got two forty three games where I'm playing opposite sides, and I thought that was complicated enough. But playing different scenarios, there's no way I could do that. Yeah, that's crazy. So just as a cautionary tale to anyone out there, that is not the optimal way to learn how to play this game. Uh, I'm also playing Campbell and Washington's War by email, uh, sort of a replay of our game at Constant World. Uh, I got a Napoleonic War with a group that I've been playing with for like two years. We've been playing by email. We're on our fourth game. Uh, and I'm playing uh, Unhappy King Charles by email. That's good. So basically everything's nothing nothing face to face. Yeah, I just don't have I don't have opponents yet. It's kind of, you know, for my dad, uh it's part of the reason. There's nobody in, in the northern Bay Area that I've ever found that plays these games. The best I could do is driving over to Oakland for a Sunday wargaming group at one of the local game stores, but that's a you know, thirty five, forty five no minute drive. drive. Yeah, and it's it's only on Sundays and I don't know any of those guys, and it's you know after meeting a bunch of the guildies at events, it's it's more fun for me just to play by email. Folks, yeah, it's it's too bad your your dad's yeah. not willing to take the time to play a game with his own son. Would force you to drive to Oakland to find people to play. That's kind of sad, but yeah, it's, it's really if only, that could, if only that could be different. Him into it right now. <laughs> if only, hey dad, if only you could spend the time to play a game with your son. Toss the ball around a little bit, push some tricks right. around. Just, could you guys just run a Harry Chapin song underneath this entire part of the conversation? I was going to say, there's a song about this situation. Come on, Dad. He's calling out to you. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, so I've got Empire of the Sun. And I've got 43, two 43 games. Uh, one where I'm the Japanese, one where I'm the Allies for Empire of the Sun. So that's been cool because it's given me a chance to see both sides of it. Um, and it is tough to keep track, though. Sometimes I have to be very careful where I'm saving different log files into folders. I have a whole system set up so I don't mix up a file and put it in the wrong one. Um, generally, I keep track because usually Pete's turns, he doesn't even bother to read the rules, so I have to completely change everything he did and make sure that it's correct, whereas Justin usually is right on, so I can be sure. But if you're playing Pete Gage, you need to make sure you're actually literally reading the rules while you're going through the log file because he will <laughs> cheat his ass off the entire time. It's a little tricksy. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm much better right now because this is a handful of little rules I've missed in a couple of the games. So the yeah. opponent's been like, so? I'm like, Pete's like, okay, so I rolled a two. So that's going to be three times my ground strength. So I destroy all your guys. I'm like, no, that's not the rule. <laughs> Let's go nope. back. Rewind. But yeah, I got I got those two uh, Empire of the Sun games going. I've got a uh, uh, an East Front two game going with Justin, where I am literally right now in Moscow. We are fighting in Moscow, and uh, Stavka Stalin himself is shooting a pistol out of a window at us. So we're literally nice. fighting with Stalin <laughs> in Moscow. Very nice. But Moscow's really hard to take. Like, I actually don't know if I can take it because I just sent it back to him, and we're deciding whether there's going to be mud. Or uh, or dry in October, so we'll see. And like my headquarters are all like zeros and ones, so it's going to be rough. Mm. We'll see if I can get in, yeah. and then I'll be able to get in. And then I'm playing ASL with Pete, of course, every single Thursday. And I've been playing Pax Romana with uh, Ralph on on Friday nights. So very nice. That's kind of cool. It's good. It's kind of like a four player. Uh, 
Ancients games set around the times of the Punic Wars, generally. And uh, but there's a bunch of two-player scenarios. So Ralph and I have been playing those. And uh, like, have you ever played Swords of Rome? No. Yeah, it's kind of like a more maybe robust version of that. Like, I think it. So it's card-driven, right? What? Is it card-driven? No, it's uh, it's it's chit-driven, chit-pull. But there are card. There are cards. Oh, okay. I thought Sword of Rome was. Yeah, and this this one, it's uh, you have chits to pull, but you you do have to uh, pull card. There are cards that you can play during the game, and it's but it's similar in that it's area movement and you fight battles with each other. It's kind of cool because your leaders get picked out randomly, so you never know what kind of how good your leader's going to be. So you might have an area That's where you're cool. like, oh, I really want to fight here. And then you get like an elite leader and you're like, hot. They're like, like I had one guy just appear in the middle. We were doing a uh, Punic Wars scenario and I had this awesome leader show up. And then uh, he just ripped down through the islands and landed in North Africa. And then right before he was going to uh, attack Carthage, I pulled an event, which was the conqueror event, which meant if you had an elite leader, he could then attack again for free after an attack. So then that guy, then it was perfect because then that guy attacked in his action at in Carthage and then was able to attack again for free and sack Carthage. So it's cool. Hmm, that's cool. And the different cool. scenarios of different events. It's a, I, it's a pretty cool game. I thought it was pretty neat. So whatever, I pre-ordered it. And uh, so then the fact that Ralph was the developer, so I figured I'd, I'd make him show me how to play it. That helps. So that's it for my games I've played. Uh, who wants to start off with a review? Well, we haven't covered oh, what everyone's yes. drinking. Okay. I was going to ask about that. Uh, that's always... <laughs> sometimes, sometimes that will decide who goes first on the, uh, on the reviews. That's true. I am so drinking uh, Bushmills on the rocks with a little water. Violating a long... Is that the, the only, only whiskey, whiskey I drink? drink? And it's generally I do not drink liquor during the podcast because I've had some bad experiences with that. So, but, <laughs> it's but yeah. easy to. So I started a little bit earlier today watching football, and so we'll see. Yeah, very nice, Doug. So I'm drinking Lafe Belgian Ale Blonde. Very nice. And I'm drinking Dickel number eight, which is good stuff. That, that, yeah, that's I've been your, on a that's crazy your thing lately. Dickel, you like the Dickel, huh? Oh, I've been so my doctor is obsessed with whiskey. Um, so I go in every three weeks. It's my it's a like a physical therapist trying to get my shoulder back in place, and uh, he's obsessed with whiskey. So every time I go in, we talk about whiskey, and he's talking about what he's drinking, and I'm talking about what I'm drinking. So like, I go to the liquor store twice a month trying to find new interesting whiskeys to talk about and uh he's he's really costing cost, costing me more money so does he, he actually be. encourage you to drink um, yeah I, I love the idea of he a does. doctor who encourages his patients to drink he does he's like have like four ounces a night it helps with stress it's going to make you relax it's going to help your healing um which i then come home and say you know i i gotta have a drink my doctor my doctor said so I've been experimenting. I bought some Winchester whiskey, some bourbon from South Carolina that was not great. So I reverted back. To yeah, but when he's telling you to drink four ounces, like how much is four ounces? 
Uh, it's two drinks if you were to like go to a bar and get a whiskey. Yeah, it's like just over two shots. Yeah, I think at that point yeah. I'd be like, hey, don't fucking lecture me, dude. Like, you know, like. <laughs> like I feel like he. I, I, I feel he's like he's putting restrictions on me. I'd be I'm like four ounces. Him. Like, don't judge me. Oh, that's 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 good for a weeknight. Yeah, I but then it adds up, though, right? Is he? Does he know? Are you doing that every weeknight? Um, no. I mean, he's not like prescribing this but to you. He's usually, not about saying, two "Hey, drink four ounces every every weekday, and then make sure you really hit it hard on the weekends." <laughs> Not in so many words. I think he says like two ounces a night is, is good for stress. It's yeah, like so basically when he wine. told me that, he'd be like four ounces to like four ounces. He's like, yeah, I'd be like, oh, I get where you're going with this, Doc. I get exactly where you're going with this, <laughs> doctor's orders. Let's go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I'm enjoying the nice. That's good. All right. I, it always makes me laugh when you say you're drinking it. When you say you're sipping it. Or whatever. I'm always. It always makes me laugh a little bit. Sipping my dickle. <laughs> I'm like, he's so talented <laughs> and flexible. He's very flexible. <laughs> okay, so uh, Doug, you want to do Empire of the Sun? You want to launch into a massive review of this Mark Herman game that I'm very enamored with? So this is going to be a fantastic review because I'm totally going to interact with you during the review because I played the game. I, I will happily start and feel free to jump in at any time. If I and Jason, do whatever you normally do. Out. Feel free to do what you normally do, your normal thing. Your shtick. Do your shtick. Yeah, I'll, be, your I'll shtick. be quiet for a little while. Yeah. I'll laugh every once in a while. Gig giggle. Um, I'll edit some Apparently, stuff according to the duck, I have a giggle. Yep. I didn't think I had a giggle. He says I have a giggle. I thought, I thought you were the giggler. I, I would have said as well. Yeah. I'll breathe every now and again. Do the ice. I'll be here. I mean, there's good. people who listen only to play yeah. play the "What is Jason eating?" game. <laughs> <laughs> what, what the fuck is Jason doing right now? <laughs> all right, go. Sweet. All right. So for anybody and who does literally just lean back in his love. chair. That was the sign of his chair breaking as he leaned back in it. What was that? <laughs> that was that was in uh, his aquarium. <laughs> So for anybody who hasn't been paying attention on the forums, uh, Empire of the Sun is the re-release of the Mark Herman classic strategic Pacific War civil game, uh, Pacific War game. Uh, it's a CDG, um, and there's a guild tourney and all that stuff going. Uh, the thing I think that's interesting about it is um, it's a unique take on the CDG dynamic. It's probably, at least of the games I've played, the most complex and difficult to grasp the CDGs. I think most of them are fairly straightforward. Some of that is the geography in the Pacific and the lack of front lines and the sort of fluid dynamic that is created by island warfare makes it a bit challenging, both in terms of there's some new rule uh, concepts that Mark has introduced into the game. But I think the thing that I struggle with the most still is what the heck do I do now? Um, you know, you, you look at a map, you've got a bunch of cards in your hand and there's no clear obvious what to do, which I think makes for a very uh, challenging and rewarding experience. So once you start to grasp the concepts, I think a lot of this starts to feel very different and unique from anything else you'll play. Uh, and for any of those folks who are thinking about picking up and playing it, I highly recommend uh, John Steidel, who's been very helpful for the tourney. He's got a ton of videos which help explain a lot of this stuff. Um, and will do a way better job than I'm doing explaining uh, any of these things. So there's a full campaign. Um, there's individual year tournament scenarios, which we talked about, um, where you can play a year in the, the war. Um, 
I'll talk about the victory conditions just briefly for the campaign. And basically, the Japanese win if they find a way to drop U.S. political will to zero, which we'll talk about how that happens. And the Allies win if Honshu Island is captured or if you can completely blockade um, the Japanese mainland from any resource hex for three consecutive turns. Most of the resource hexes are in the Dutch East Indies, Malaya, and Burma, um, as well as one, I think, in the Philippines. Uh, the Allies can also win if they strategically bomb for four consecutive turns by having a B-29 within range of Tokyo. Um, and that's pretty much the way uh, the how to win works. So the sequence play is pretty straightforward. There's a reinforcement phase, a strategic war phase, which is pretty much B-29 bombing and uh, allied submarine warfare with the primary goal of reducing the number of cards the Japanese get as a result. There's an offensive phase, which is where all the cards are played. Uh, then there's a political phase where countries who've been uh, or, or, or conquered surrender, and then an adjustment to the U.S. political will. And then lastly, there's uh, attrition for anyone who's out of supply. Yeah, and Doug, I just want to mention, too, like basically, if I understand correctly, too, the, uh, the number of cards the Japanese get is based on how many resources they control on the map, right? Yeah, that's exactly that's so that. Drive, right. So that kind of drives the, the they, strategy where they need to get the resources so they can max out their card hand to match that of the allies. Exactly. And it's what I, it's kind of what I love. Most of the war games I like are the ones where you have this sort of dynamic of one side who's got a lot of power early trying to get as much of, the, you know, whatever they're trying to get as they can in an in a, in a world where that's not going to be sustainable long-term and the other side's going to push them back the other way. And so then both sides get to sort of be on the offensive at some point, be the side that has a lot of resources and also be, you know, sort of getting to play both sides of either offense or defense. And there's definitely that dynamic of the Japanese trying to grab as many of those resource bases as they can early in the war, knowing that they don't have the capacity to uh, build more units. They're not going to get as many reinforcements as the allies and they're going to have to basically hold on as long as they can, because they're just not going to be able to to weather the storm. And so that that whole idea of grabbing them and holding their resource access, because that's what gives them cards, is, is super important. So there are four uh, card types um, during the offensive phase. There's resource events, which are pretty straightforward. They'll provide special reinforcements or replacements. Um, there are evac- reaction events. Um, the most interesting ones, weather, which actually allows you to cancel an offensive uh, played by the other player, which can be very demotivating. Um, there's also a counteroffensive card, which allows the reacting player to activate more units than they would normally be able to. And I'll talk a little bit about how the defensive player gets to react to whatever the offensive player is doing, which is, a, I think, a little bit unique to this game. Um, there's also some cards which allow for limited attacks, um, sort of post-battle, like submarine attacks and kamikazes. Um, and then lastly... Um, there's intelligence cards, which allows you to change the intelligence um, situation for the offensive, uh, which I'll also get into a little bit more. There are also the third card is a political card. Um, so the, the game abstracts the war in China and India. Um, there's a little bit of Chinese coastal hexes which are in play, but for the most part, China is an abstracted through a track which has it basically on a stable to uh, surrender track, and India's got something very, very similar. Um, there are cards that the U.S. political will, um, and then uh, also uh, take into account there's the war in Europe, which is abstracted, which, depending on where the war, war in Europe scale is on the track, affects uh, which Allied reinforcements come in, if they get delayed, if they have to go to Europe for two or three turns, I think it's three turns. Um, 
But then lastly, the most important one is military cards, which is how you activate units and conduct attacks and take territory. And that's where most of the action happens. So you play a, a, a military card uh, for uh, an offensive. You can also play any of the other cards, any of the resource cards, reaction cards, political cards. They also have an operations value, um, which you can use instead of that type of event uh, to activate units as well. <clears throat> so the idea is you, you use the card to activate an HQ. If you use it for OC, basically it's the OC value plus the um, HQ's uh, efficiency. Uh, if it's a military event, will specify how many units can be activated uh, in addition to the efficiency level. And usually those military events allow you to activate more units. So it'll be four, five, six uh, units that you can Yeah, and, and one of the things that, that's a, a strategic advantage with the game is, um, you know, there's a, sometimes a tendency, like you might have an, an, an event card that is a three ops card, but it has like a five logistics. And so... Um, it, the five logistics is if you play it as the event, if you put, decide to play it as the ops card, the ops, then you only get basically get to activate three units. But the, the downside of that is that your opponent, if he successfully reacts to the card, also gets to play it as a three ops to react. So as you start to play, you realize that playing the event cards as their own events is more valuable because it allows you to have a numerical advantage on the attack because you can use the logistics value of the event card as your starting point for how many units you can activate as opposed to the ops value of the card if you were to use it for ops, in addition to the fact that you can also choose more battle hexes. So... Yeah, yeah. The, 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 using them as events not only gets you generally better activations, but there tends to be bonuses like, you know, you get a die roll modifier if it's ground combat, or there's there's a, other kinds of things that are usually on the event cards that make the offensive, uh, the event be something more willing to be used. One thing I have noticed, and I haven't gone through the deck to look at it, is, you know, what happens is you activate a bunch of units, move them, and basically your opponent gets to roll a die, to see if they're able to react to your offensive. Correct, correct. And, and if they roll under that number that's on that's the right. card, they get to activate whatever the OC value of the card is. What I have noticed is that if the reaction die roll necessary to be successful for OCs is usually lower than for it, the military. It depends on the card. Some of the cards, there's no... Like, there's the one card the allies have that's called carrier raids, where if they do it, they can activate, I think, three carriers... And, and it's only carriers, and they basically do a raid, and the EC react value for the Japanese is none. It's an automatic yeah. surprise attack, which basically means you're going to do all your, your damage, and only after you do your damage and cause your hits can Japanese do hits back. Otherwise, yeah. if you successfully react, you, it's simultaneous. <clears throat> but yeah, it's a fascinating right. part of the game where... Choose in, but sometimes while uh, Doug's talking about using event cards, you might use an event card. But sometimes the event cards are also very restrictive, where they'll say like only one ground unit can be activated, or so that might be a case where you'd say, "Well, I'm going to use this card for ops because the restrictions on the card don't help me right now." So it's a three ops card, even though it's a great event card. I'm going to save it for later or whatever. Yeah, that's true. There are some some restrictions on those event cards where it's only navy units can be active, or only ground units, or or, or combinations of the two. And so the uh, so when you activate an HQ, he has a range. Uh, you know, it varies between I think ten is the lowest, or eight up to twenty five for CPAC. And basically, they can activate those number of units that are allowed either through the OC or through the event card text um, that are within their activation range and supply. Um, 
And I'll go into supply later because that's a, a whole other thing, which I think is one of the harder parts of, of this game to grasp. Um, <clears throat> but essentially, I'll, I'll do it now. Essentially, the ally HQs need to be able to trace to the map edges, and the Japanese HQs need to be able to trace to the home islands. Um, typically, if you're on a coastal hex, um, the only thing that can block your supply is enemy zones of influence, which are projected by air units or carriers, which we'll talk about in a little bit as well. Um, and so, and, but land units um, can also block other. You can't trace through an opponent's land unit uh, if, you, if you're doing that as well. Um, so each, so to talk about the zone of influence a little bit because I think it's important. Is each carrier unit and each air unit projects a two hex zone of influence um, that blocks supply. So, which if you know if you look at the map, there's all these airfields all over the Pacific and on the islands, and you have to be able to trace your supply. Through, through the HQ to a map edge that's not blocked. And generally that's not too much of a problem um, because you can also counter an enemy ZOI by having your own zone of influence. So if you've got two units that are, have overlapping zones of influence, you can trace supply through those zones of influence. But it is important to keep track of where enemy air is because if you're not paying attention, sometimes they can cut you off. Uh, with their enemy zones. And, and that's sometimes why your opponent will target certain airfields in order to, you'll be like, why is he going after this particular island? Well, it's because it has a strategic position. And then you start to understand, yeah. well, I guess that's why this fucking island was so important because <laughs> look where it's located. Yeah, you look at the Solomons in particular and that becomes readily apparent why the, the Japanese were trying to push seemingly too far uh, in the Solomons because if they, if they can get control of the Solomons and some of the islands farther uh, east, it would really have made life very difficult for the Allies to be able to project any power into the Central Pacific. Uh, the other thing is, is overland supply is a little bit complicated. It, it mostly comes up in um, the CBI, which is you know one of the few areas of the map that are not small islands. Um, and if you're tracing land, and we're uh, talking about we're over, talking about China, Burma, India for China, CBI, Burma, India. China, 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 China. That's a very thank you, thank you for jumping in. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I was looking at the map. I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. It, Thanks, it's a Dave. new. It's a new. Uh, uh, it's a new league that's been started. <laughs> <laughs> it's an index. It's, it's a new right. fantastic financial. Uh, they have a point that's called a rouge that you can get in the CBI. Uh, so yeah. So if you're tracing supply <laughs> over land, uh, you have to be able to be within four movement points of your H of an HQ to be able to trace supply. And, and the thing that makes it very different in this game is there are very few one movement point hexes on the map. Most of the hexes are either jungle or mountains or mixed terrain. So in the CDI, if you haven't built the Burma Road or some of the other um, supply routes or transport routes, which can be built over the game, it's very difficult to get very far inland without putting yourself out of supply. So it makes building those transport routes very important for, for both sides to be able to project power, particularly in, into Burma. <clears throat> so you've activated your HQ, you've activated the units that are in supply, uh, you then move them. Uh, movement is based on the OC value of the card. Um, so one OC provides one air leg, one ground movement point, and five naval hexes. Two OCs provide two legs, two movement points, and ten hexes for the naval, and then three and so on. So you get the idea. Um, Obviously, for ground units, that makes the two and three OC movement cards very important because in most places, if you only have a one OC card, you 
you probably can't even move a ground unit um, at that point because there are very few of those hexes. Um, one thing to note about air units is they get legs of movement. So if like a, an air unit has a four movement value and they get two legs, they have to move four hexes to another airfield and then from that airfield to a second airfield. They can't just move eight hexes from one airfield to another airfield, so they have to hop. Uh, airfields. And that's where capturing, I think, some of those airfields in the South Pacific become very important because it, it can be hard to move air units around if your enemy has a lot of those airfields. So once you've moved everyone, uh, whether it's ground, you, you presume you move ground units in there, you've got air as well, and maybe Navy helping bombard, um, you designate your uh, attack hexes, combat hexes, where, those, where you've moved into uh, enemy hexes. There are no zones of control. This is not like other games. You know, you can basically move anywhere. You can move in. You basically move into your enemy unit's hex to initiate combat. Um, so once you've moved in, that's where you get this um, uh, intelligence uh, role that happens. Um, so you move in. You designate your battle hexes. Your opponent can either play a card, which allows them to change the intelligence condition from surprise. So all battles basically start as surprise attacks. Um, he can play a card to turn it into um, an intercept, or he can roll a die against that number that's designated on the card, which ranges between three and uh, about six or seven on the high end. Um, there is one modifier that comes on that roll. If you move into, if the offensive player is moving into a reaction player's zone of influence, he gets a minus two die roll modifier. So basically he rolls that die, and if he fails that die roll, it remains a surprise attack. He doesn't get to react at all. As Dave mentioned, uh, the offensive player takes all of their hits before uh, the defensive player gets to roll. So if you have the units get eliminated or flipped, um, that will reduce the amount of damage you do. You, you mean, I mean, when you say take, you mean they they allocate all their hits. So they, they do the ah. damage before they get damage. Exactly. Because you said take, which makes it sound like they're taking the hits. But Yeah, yeah that's what I mean. Yeah, so when, yeah. so when Doug plays a card, Doug might play a card for an operation. And if he or an offensive, so when he plays it, if he plays it as an offensive, it might say on the top OC three EC five. If he plays it as a for ops, just the ops value of the card, that means I have to roll a three or less to uh, react to it and let myself successfully be on even terms. Otherwise, I just got to take the hits. If he plays it in his event, it means I got to roll a five or less to get it. And again, with the modifier that he mentioned for if it's in my air range, but so yeah, depending on how he played the card depends. And there are some cards I have as reaction cards that might say like, I can automatically react. Like the Japanese yeah. have like intercept cards that say, boom, you can automatically change the intelligence from surprise to intercept, which puts us on equal terms. Let's me move units. I might move units into the battle area and I might even move infantry units into the hexes he's attacking. So, yeah. Yeah, so if you if you successfully do the the roll, you get to then uh, activate an HQ, use the OC value of the HQ plus the efficiency of that HQ to then move units, defensive units into that hex or navy units or air air units within range to try and win the score, as Dave mentioned. And so once the defending player either fails the reaction roll or does his reaction moves, uh, that's when you go into combat, and you start first with air and naval, which gets combined together. So each side rolls, uh, adds up the attack values of their air and naval units and rolls on the, the, the air-naval chart. There are a few modifiers. Um, surprise gets you a modifier, I think, of plus three if you get a surprise attack. Um, and then later in the war, 
uh, the U.S. gets a modifier because they have better planes than the, the Japanese yeah, do. Yeah, the nicest um, thing about the whole game, I think, is that while the offensive interaction and all the cards sometimes can seem complex, the combat system is, like, really super simple. simple. Like, super you just simple. walk through step by step. There's no way you can... Like, Pete, I'm talking to you, Pete Gade. There is no <laughs> way you can fuck up the way the combat system works if you just walk through it. It's it's pretty it's pretty simple. It's and and that's why I think that's that's great about it is there's some parts of it that are super complex, but I think at this scale, the combat doesn't need to be that complex. It's really you know I think they're three month turns, you know, so you're doing a fair amount of damage in combat, and there doesn't need to be a lot of nuance to it. I think to make it make how that that combat come uh, happen in the real world. Yeah, and we're group. talking about moving around cores and divisions and air flotillas yeah. and fleet yeah. groups. I mean, these are big forces that are being moved. Yep. And so basically you look, you take your number of attack value and you roll a die and the range of results on um, air naval range from a quarter of your hits, or a quarter of your attack value has uh, become hits all the way up to one times your attack value. So if you roll really well, and you had 25 air units in the battle, you would do 25 hits worth of damage to your opponent. If you rolled a half, you'd do 13 because you round up. And if you did a quarter, it's not. Um, and basically, you would take those number of hits that you get, and you would look to uh, allocate them against the other player. And you get to pick which units they get allocated against. So if I got nine hits, and he had two units, and one had a defense value of 10 and one had a defense value of 8, I'd be able to flip the unit that has the defense value of 8. I would not be able to flip the defense value of 10. Um, and then your opponent would do the same thing. And then basically, if uh, if there are any units, ground units left on the map after that, which presumably there will be, then you go to ground attack, and you do basically the same thing. You just add up the attack values. Did, did Doug just fall Still in his there? chair? Sorry about that. I, dro- I, I dropped the button. Um, where did I drop off there? <laughs> your fingers. Your, it, it was just a few seconds ago. Your yeah. fingers slipped off the, yeah. the mouse button. So, um, so ground attack can do up to two times, you know, one and a half or two times uh, value if you get really good rolls. And in this game, the way that a lot of the big units are, are set up, they'll be... 18 attack values, and they'll only have a defense value of 12. And so let's say, you know, each side has two 18 attack units in their uh, hex, two 18-12s fighting each other, and they both roll 2x. They're each going to do 36 hits worth of damage, which is going to eliminate one of the units and flip a a third one. And so the moral of the story is if you've got a lot of units in a battle, it's going to be bloody. You're going to lose ships. Units are going to get eliminated. Uh, right, but a, one of, one of, one of the things I like about the ground combats, though, is, is, is while terrain's a modifier, too, you do, do get modifiers for having, the, as the offensive player, having only the naval units in. Like, if you have naval yes. superiority or air superiority, that's an advantage. Yep. The other cool thing is when uh, units are flipped, you cannot eliminate a unit unless all of the units in the force have been flipped. So Correct. there were times in my battles with Justin where I'd, I'd made some haiku for him where I'd be like, oh, it's your friend Yamato. And Yamato shows up. Mm-hmm. Well, Yamato is like an 18-18 unit. So it's got an 18 defense. So when he would attack an island and I knew he was going to have like a 12 attack or something, Yamato would sail in with a bunch of half-strength flipped naval units and fight. But he can't do anything to the flipped guys unless he can get enough combat strength to flip Yamato. 
because yeah. Yeah. you can get the 18 attack strength to mm -hmm. flip them, you can't damage, you can't eliminate the other flipped guys. So it's just like an annoying thing I would do to him all the time, where he would try to invade an island, then Yamato would sail in, crush everyone, and then just sail away with all its crippled little helpers going back with it. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance which I still haven't figured out about sort of the mixing and matching of units and their values to get sort of optimal level. You know, the one the one time where you can get away with or get at someone like the Amato is if you do roll a natural nine on the Aaron Naval yeah, that's right. uh, battle, you get to actually flip. You get a critical hit. And you get to flip the same unit twice if you have enough um, hit units to do that. So that's a way you can get at something like Yamato. Uh, the other thing that that's notable is on the air naval side, um, if there's uh, no defensive air units and only air units on the offensive side, they can't eliminate the last ground unit with air That's right. It's no matter how many they That's get. Correct. So there'll always be a ground combat of some But kind. there are there are cards too that the players have where like you can be like, oh you only half step my carrier, so fuck you. I'm I'm gonna react out of the battle. I'm done. Yeah. And then they're like, oh slam, submarine attack. I sink your fucking yes. carrier. And then you're like, I had that oh, happen you in bastard. one of my other games where both of my carriers got sub because they actually got a successful submarine attack roll after. Because for the Japanese player, I think that's VPs, right? If they, they ever get a turn yeah. where the US has no eight aircraft carriers left. In the scenarios, it is, yeah. yeah. So, very cool um, game. Yeah, it's very cool. And the other thing... To, oh, talk to about an inter-service agreement. Oh, right, yeah. So one of the things, one of the cards you can play, it's, uh, I forget what they're called, um, is, is inter-service rivalry. So in the, at least in the campaign game, the game starts with both the Allies and the Japanese having cooperation and coordination between the Army and the Navy, which during the course of the war did not turn out to be the case for either side for very long. Um, and so there are event cards which can basically take your opponent and put them into inter-service rivalry, which means when you do an activation, you can only activate army units or only activate navy units, but not activate both, which you can normally do if you're not in inter-service rivalry. And then there are cards that you can play to undo inter-service rivalry. In the scenarios, I think you can play a three-ops card as well um, to get out of inter-service rivalry that's, that's, if you want to, which I don't, I don't think you're allowed to do in the no, campaign game. <clears throat> um, one other thing to note, if you're doing an amphibious invasion and uh, you're, you lose the air-naval battle, which is determined by the number of hits that each side gives, the amphibious invasion fails um, and is turned back. So unless there are ground units came overland as well, there would be no ground combat. Um, I think that's uh, pretty much it. Was there anything that you thought, Dave, that I missed in terms of how the combat works that's important. Yeah, I think that's good. I don't think you need to get too much in the weeds on it. I think it's pretty no. good. And, you know, yeah. there's there's times where there's a tension between wanting to play a card for ops or wanting to, like, as the Japanese player, there's been times where, like, you you really feel like you're driven by the same things that are dri were driving the Japanese. Like, I'm like, I need to control these islands, but I really need to close the, the hump. And close the mm -hmm. Burma Road because I want to capture China and get big VPs for capturing China. Yeah. And so now I've got this card, and it's a three ops card, which I really need for air replacements for my air units. But I also really need it for a Chinese offensive to push the Chinese yeah. back. So I'm like, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of tension for the players between you're struggling to figure out what you're going to do with these fucking cards in your hand. It drives you crazy. Yes. And you can, you can also store a card for a pre prior previous right. turn there's like a future offensive card you can be like i'm going to save that for later and hide it from the player and that you could store it for later but man it puts you in the driver's seat where you feel like holy shit i got to really get this shit under control yeah yeah the 43 scenario really has that tension especially for the japanese where in the 
the, the CBI, they're sort of on the offensive and there's a lot of victory points that they can win by being aggressive in the CBI. Whereas in the rest of the Pacific, they're kind of playing defense at that point from, from that point forward. And so there's like, do I sort of bolster the defenses in the South Pacific or do I try and put, use my you know good cards to push in, in CBI? And there's definitely a lot of that back and forth. Yeah, and the, in the Pacific, you're definitely doing more of like counter punching and trying to hold back the U S while you try to take all of India maybe. But I got to say, I find it very hard to try to keep, as the as the allies, it's hard to keep the Japanese out of India. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard. It's very very hard. So I do have to note for the record that while she may think I'm a dork for this, she did bring me another beer. Oh, that was that was very nice of her. <laughs> uh, that that pretty much covers combat. The other thing that I that, that I wanted to note is because you're right, Dave. Uh, if you don't have, if you're the defensive player and you don't have air or naval participating in the battle, there are some pretty hefty die roll modifiers that you get as the attacker. And so sometimes it pays to sacrifice air units um, to, to try and at least uh, get rid of those modifiers. For the Japanese, it's very difficult because they get no air reinforcements basically the whole game or air replacements the whole game. There are some cards which give them some of the events, which gives them some ability to get additional air, but for yeah, the like most part, training and stuff like that. Yeah, for the most part, the Japanese have to be very judicious about how they use their air resources because basically they're not getting any more than they start. Yeah, with. the problem for the Japanese is the Allied forces are basically disposable. Like they can lose tons of stuff and they get it all back every turn. Where, you, yep. where your resources are not your finite resources. So. Yeah, it really gives you a great feeling. Like, I think I'm doing okay, but can I hold on? It's just nice. Great game. Yeah, I think for the Japanese, I think for the Japanese player, this game really sort of hits that that's that dynamic of how much do I fight forward and how much do I preserve what I know is very limited resources I have left. Yeah, I agree. So, is that it for your review? No, I was going to talk about a couple of things. Um, uh, let's see. So, like U.S. political will, like pretty much how you. I think you allude to a little bit how you decrease political will as the Japanese player is either capturing Alaska or Hawaii, which Hawaii uh, doesn't really happen very often, I don't think. Um, certain U.S. casualties, like if you completely eliminate a U.S. carrier, you'll drop uh, or a U.S. unit, ground unit, you'll drop U.S. political will. As you mentioned, lack of aircraft carriers um, will do it. But one of the other things that it does, which I think is really great, is after turn four, the Allies have to have a certain amount of progress each turn at capturing Japanese-controlled hexes. Otherwise, U.S. political will drops. Right, because the, and the so public sort of, basically expects there to be progress. Yes, exactly. And so you have to, you know, even though you have these lovely resources that you can sort of squander at your leisure because you know you're going to get them back, if the American player is not aggressive enough um, and not successful at being aggressive, that that is essentially how he might end up losing the game as the ally. And, and Doug, talk about how the European war affects the game too. So European War, same thing. It's, um, you know, there's cards that play it. And, and what it does is there's a track that it slides along. And depending on where you are in the War of Europe, if the Axis is having success and you're playing cards that give Axis success, it will either delay or or pull um, reinforcements that you would otherwise get to use immediately um, and defers them one turn or as long as three turns, depending on how the war in Europe is going. So if the war in Europe is not going very well for the U.S. player, they're going to get less resources to sort of use to, to, to fight the battle in the Pacific. Yeah, and some of that depends just on how the cards come out because the problem yeah. for the Japanese player is most of those are three ops cards that are pretty juicy and are good, yeah. good for like some medium range actions that you can do. Um, 
But if you get a bunch of those, especially early in the game, where the the and the U.S. the allies have similar cards that can move it the other way. But if as a Japanese player you get a bunch of those and the allies didn't, you can really push the, the European war back to where yeah. it cripples the effort in the Pacific because things are going yeah. so shitty in Europe that they're not getting any help. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and the other place where the Jap- that, that's abstracted, the Japanese player can sort of affect the sort of outcome is the war in China as well, which is you know, completely abstracted through this sort of track that goes from, you know, China being actively in the war all the way to surrendering, which has value to the to the U.S. player. Because if you get the Chinese to surrender, one, all the Chinese units come off the map that are available. You lose the airfields in China, and there's a uh, political will hit to losing China. And the way the Japanese player gets the Chinese to surrender is by doing Chinese offensives, and they do them either cards that are designated as Chinese offensives or through 3OC cards, and their success is based on how many divisions they currently have in China, which is just an, another abstract. So you start with, I think, eight or nine divisions in, in, in China as a Japanese, and if you play an OC card, you basically have to roll less than the number of divisions to successfully move the, the counter towards Chinese surrender. But those divisions are also your only reinforcements as the Japanese player to re- to replace lost uh, uh, ground units, units, ground units, ground units in right. the game. And so you can basically start taking them away each replacement phase, but that means every Chinese offensive becomes less and less likely to succeed. And so there's sort of a dynamic in there, which is how much do you pull? And, and I think it also makes the Chinese coastal hexes weaker. Their intrinsic yes. defense weaker as you go down. It, it, it does. Yes, yeah, so it's a well-designed game. I mean, the thought that went into the cards is... You know, I don't know if I, I'm a disciple of Mark Herman. I don't follow a lot of his different things, but I have to say the way the game is designed, it's really great. Really, a lot yeah, of it, business went into the game. It's really hard, I think, to get that dynamic of the Pacific War right, and this is as close. I mean, every as ca- I every card does. is finely balanced. Where you're like, it's a surprise attack kind of card, and you can see how the EC and OC Intel values have been affected to where that's a good card for that too. You know, that's just all the cards work really well for particular purposes, and it creates tough decision points for the players. Yeah, it, to me, it's like. A- Every every game and all the games I'm playing, every turn is like, what kind of what do I do now? And there's so many options available to you. It can be a little bit overwhelming at first. Yeah, I'm happy. I've been doing, like I said, I've been doing two 43 scenarios. And in one, I, I've conquered all of northern India as Japan. But I, I've just transferred troops to, uh, to uh, Papua New Guinea, which is probably a mistake. Mm-hmm. I think I just fucked up by doing that. And then in my when I'm playing the the Jap when I'm playing the Allies, I just got my fleet completely fucked up by the Allies. Like they caught my fleet and just wrecked it. So we'll see. Yeah. No, it's it's a great game. I, so far, I've been I've been enjoying it a lot. Have either of you guys done anything with the solitaire rules? I have not tried to yeah. to grasp that. Yeah, amazingly, I haven't either. I should probably check it out. Yeah, he, he talked about it a lot coming up to this print run, and I, I pulled my P500 for it just because of time, the timing of it, but I thought about using some credit at the, the fall sale to get it if the solitaire rules were pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, at least the reaction on the forums has been pretty positive. Everyone's obsessed yeah. with it, so it seems like yeah. it seems like something. Uh, speaking of... Speaking have to eventually of pulling get into off my P500, I did not get the day of days. No, just no. 
too much money. I think I think you're probably it was okay. just too expensive. I couldn't justify it. Like that's a like, lot. Yeah, I never even put no. it on the T5. I'm like, you can't just make three games. Like it couldn't. It had to be one big giant fucking game. Like that right. just pushed it too far. I'm just not going to dump 195 bucks or something like that on a, a game right now. So yeah, I didn't do it. Yeah. So that's my review of Empire of the Sun. Okay, so Doug, for fun, what do you rate it? One to ten. Cool. Uh, right now, this is a solid eight and a half, nine. And for beers, I think early on you should keep the beers to a low number. I think once you get the system grasped, it's it's actually not as complicated as it seems at first. But I'd say it's probably a three or four beer game at least initially. Yeah, I agree. I think once you get the hang of the game, actually, the combat's really simple. It's yep. really obvious, so it's not that complicated. But I, it's just that a lot of the concepts are, are very unique to this game. So you, you don't, it's not like, Hey, I've played a bunch of these type of games, so I'll grasp this right away. There's, there's nothing like that. No, you really, the, 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 it's exactly <laughs> what John has said. And what I've told Pete 5,000 times when he tries to give me my, his vassal logs, if you would just follow the sequence, yes. the way it is in yes. the rules, stage by stage, <laughs> you would not make these mistakes. It's actually it's actually really simple in that regard. That it, it truly is true that if you just follow the sequence in the book, Do you hear that, Pete? it's pretty hard to screw Do you up. You hear that, Pete? It's not just me saying it to you. Now it's Doug saying it. That's pretty cool. I I, li- I like when games are like that. Where yeah, the rules might be a little complex, but when you follow the sequence of play, it's no, it really yeah, does pretty a pretty much good job there. of walking you right through in the rules exactly what you can and can't do. I mean, there's some little issues yeah. that come up, but man, it's pretty clear normally. Like, I think they're yeah. really well, they're pretty tight. It doesn't have a lot of exceptions or weird carve-outs, you know, like if you're standing on one leg, rubbing your tummy, you know, this well, happens instead honest, of that. Well, let's be honest, it's not the first edition, so let's hope for fuck's sake sure. that they would do that. Let's yeah. tighten, yeah. tighten this shit up. So it's good. So it's great. Very yeah. good. So very yeah. happy with that. Yeah. Must buy. Excellent yeah. game. Must buy. I, I would totally agree. And, and and good, Doug. So you did you finally cool. take the brick off of your push-to-talk button that you had on it? Because I, I did finally, yes. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Jason, do you have a game that you would like to uh, review? Okay, I do, I'm going to go get a drink real quickly. quick. Can I do that? I'll, I'll, I'll okay, be back in a sec. It. How could I miss yeah, it? Yeah, go, go ahead. All right. Okay. What's the name of the game? Because it's going to go pretty quickly. Okay, I'll it's be It's called back. Meat <laughs> Guess what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, day leaves. Day leaves. I'll take a drink in preparation. Uh, so this is Meat Grinder. It's a magazine game from um, Against the Odds, and it is surprisingly about a battle during the Vietnam War. Um, in fact, the last major battle of the Vietnam War, April of 1975, uh, the Battle of Juan Loc. Uh, and this is when the communists are kind of getting ready to wipe the rest of the Arvin out um, and then head on into Saigon. So in general, the the components, the art are pretty standard. Uh, ATO fare, they're they're pretty good. The map is pretty. The components are clear and serviceable. Um, no complaints there for sure. Uh, it's a it's a it's a pretty standard two player hex encounter war game. Um, the rules are pretty good. There's there's a few things that aren't super clear, um, like uh, handling helicopters helicopters isn't isn't listed and set up for the uh for the scenarios you kind of have to dig into the rules a little bit to find out how those work 
Um, speaking of sequence of play in Empire of the Sun, the sequence of play here needs a little bit of work. There are a few key steps that aren't included um, that even when you're following it, you know, like, uh, there's something missing here, so then you have to get back into the rules. Luckily, the rules are structured pretty much in the sequence of play, so you can kind of follow the rules, but it's easier to just follow that one sheet. Um, the the player aid that comes with the game is is pretty nice, uh, considering it's a double side printed eleven by seventeen sheet, so you can rip it in half, and each player nice. gets gets one. So I think those things are all pretty nice. Uh, like I said before, it's pretty straightforward. Um, there's there's not a lot of super innovative things here, but it's but it's pretty solid. Um, the bombardment, how it works, um, are, is pretty cool. The uh, the NVA rocket trucks are pretty brutal, but there's a there's an event that can potentially take those out of the game. Um, also, each side attacks each turn, which I really like. Um, so even if you're not on, um, even if you're n- not the current player, you still get to attack. So you kind of have to plan your turns out accordingly. Welcome back, Dave. Did you enjoy my message? <laughs> um, it, it's really distracting. It's so good. We, we have like a we, we have it, inside it channel it's, now. It's great. It's Where guys will be like, oh, man, I have to go to the bathroom. I have to go to the bathroom so bad. It goes, it goes Dave has to go to the bathroom really um, bad. Yeah, the Siri voice <laughs> describing your Unmut. <clears throat> um, the CRT and the bombardment results tables are really cool. I really like the way they work. Uh, combat's pretty simple. It's just, um, I think, one or two dice rolls, which which I liked. After uh, the game I reviewed last time where you're rolling seven, eight times each turn for, for combat resolution, it was kind of a pain in the ass. Uh, so that's pretty much it. I mean, it's it's pretty standard fare. Um, it's... Ultimately, it's a it's a decent game. It's not a must own by any any stretch. If you're interested in um, the Vietnam War, I would say it's it's worth checking out. I got it for like seven dollars. Wow. So so for that, and it's, Jason, it's I miss this it. because um, I miss this because I wasn't. It's here, playable but, uh, solo. What part of the Vietnam War does it simulate? It's it's the the last major battle. It's Juan Loc. Uh, it's April 1975. So it's right before. The NVA got into um, so it's Arvin VNV got into Saigon. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is it yep. fluid it's, or is it a set? It's pretty standard, battle? but it's it's because one of the things I love about Vietnam is it's a very fluid sort of dynamic. Yeah, it's it's kind of a set piece, and it's it's about kind of keeping hexes. That the victory points are all kind of attrition and and. Um, you know, landscape based. You give victory points for being in certain hexes or capturing and controlling certain hexes. Um, but but the way the battle plays out is still pretty fluid. It's not. There's no front because um, the NVA kind of come in from three sides of the map, and the uh, the Arvin are trying to hold, and they're trying to hold a couple spots that don't really make sense. So you end up consolidating and then still trying to leave yourself open. You know, a path to retreat back to Saigon potentially. So it's it's fun, um, and it, I think it does a pretty good job of of um, simulating the battle and kind of where the NBA were coming now, and, now, and why. And um, it it doesn't really justify why okay. you want to keep the hexes as the Arvin that you want to. Now, I do you mean, feel like you get fortresses some but, for the units involved? Like, is there some personality? Like, the, it's this Arvin unit commanded by this guy. 
defending against this NVA? Like, is there some, as opposed to, hey, it's the yellow units that are fighting against the, the tan units? Not, not necessarily. I mean, it's it's this force against this force. It's uh, uh, unfortunately the Arvin didn't really have a racist, lot of personality. Racist. There are leaders in the game that have. <laughs> I, it's true. <laughs> they the, they didn't have a lot of individuality and personality, I, with with a few key exceptions, of course. But but at this point in the war, they're just worn out. They're they're hanging on by a thread, um, and and that's shown here. Like you, you can get slaughtered as the Arvin, but because of the way the victory points are stacked, you can still win, um, even though you kind of got wiped out. You just held a, a couple key places and and did. That's a shame. You know, I think there's damage. There, the I would NBA. think there's more heroic stories. But there's not. Maybe there aren't. You think there'd be some heroic battles they could? Uh, from what I've read, there really aren't. Yeah, yeah the not you know pretty. they were kind of fed up with the war yeah. at that point. So, yeah. So is that yeah, a fun battle though? I mean, amazing. without any like context of for me, the fun is like the excitement and the heroism and the fighting no. and the story and. Um, if if you know, like, hey, we're the last defense of Saigon, and you're you're getting into that mindset, and and you you have the historical context, and that and that's something I will say. Um, against the odds, especially in this issue, did a great job with the background historical uh, content. You know, some of the magazines don't do a great job of really kind of, you know, th- there will be articles about the battle, but they're not really that interesting or they, they don't, just the way they work isn't isn't very interesting. This this article in, in, um, in particular, and this issue is, do a very good job kind of getting you into the mindset of what happened and, and why this battle took place and reading that and then playing the game. I think it does give you an appreciation, but coming into a cold, having no interest in the battle itself or in the war, it's, it's not going to be that interesting. It's going to be two forces kind of, you know, red against blue crashing up against each other and, okay. and fighting over a couple fortresses. Yeah. So it's, it's maybe a, a ultimately forgettable game i mean it's decent i i won't be getting rid of it um but it's it's definitely not a must own so i'll give it a five for fun i mean it's it's interesting um it is five basically your minimum for uh, a vietnam uh, there are a couple that your what's what's your minimum one to ten score no i gave no i gave was that the one where you did the apocalypse now helicopter raid on the village yeah yeah, that yeah, that one was awful. Um, so this, I mean, it's it's playable. It's it's definitely all there. The rules work. It's just not. It's not great. You know, it's not. There's nothing. Maybe I'll give it a six because it's it's better than mediocre, but it's you know it's not a must own. And then beers, I'll give it. I don't know five or six in there too. It's it's not so complex that you can't can't drink a little bit while while you're playing it. And and it would be a good because it's like a two three hour game. It's a good. You know, bullshit game. Have you played the Rock and Roll Vietnam games? Because I I saw they were going to reissue. They're going to reissue like all um, their games. Forgotten Heroes. They're going to reprint them all. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I have. I have Forgotten Heroes. I don't have the the Anzac expansion, but it's it's good. I don't I don't know if I've talked about it. 
It's it's a solid. Yeah, I guess we're game. we're waiting for GTS to make their but they're all game. Yeah, eventually. We'll see. And that will be exciting. The thing there, though, is they're made up. They're they're not real battles. There, dude, just it's crazy because there's the so many books and, written. And I mean, talk about a period of the war, of war where I don't think we've ever had more guys write or self-publish books about a period talking about their own stories. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. there's tons of stories out there for scenarios. So, North, yeah, that is that is definitely underserved. But North Vietnamese the, not writing unique these scenarios. They're, they're yeah. a little biased from our side, but. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think the issue is that there weren't a ton of set piece battles. Like I and and um the GTS Vietnam game and it's not GTS, that's just what we refer refer to it as. The designer was there. Like he I think he knows that you can't really with the way that game works, you can't set up a set piece. It's it's more about going on a search and destroy mission. And a lot of those missions were super generic. You just went into the jungle um, because of some intel you got, and you you either fought or you didn't. So I, I I I think I understand why some of them are generic, but I know that turns a lot of people off. Hmm. I'll be I'll be buying. I give it a firm. Obviously, hmm. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Search and destroy. I think by itself, maybe you can just consider that the battle. I mean, like. I don't know. We were soldiers. So meat once. grinder, it's it's okay. The uh, yeah, Drang Valley, that's a set piece battle, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's yeah, but like you thirty could hours. Do, you could do a platoon, platoon <clears throat> so scale scenarios based on that, or squad scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I've I've actually tinkered with doing something on on that battle specifically. Um, but I don't know for a big game, like, like the GTS one, you, you can't do it. And, and a lot of the, the set piece battle games that I do have, um, like this one and like, um, um, there's one on Kaysan called Kaysan from Against the Odds. That's ultimately a little bit boring because everything is known, like, there's a guy here, and they're they're attacking this hex. You're trying to keep this hex, and yeah, that's not really what the Vietnam War was shadows. about. Mm-hmm, exactly. Well, very cool. And there was smoke on the water. So, uh, yeah. Well, no, I wanted to talk yeah. to Doug real quick. Your too. Turn, Doug, are you awake? Sure. Go ahead. I'm still here. Uh, what do you think of Constant World, buddy? I thought Constant World was great. It was. Uh, it, I had a couple of games that I had set up with non-guildies that ultimately ended up getting canceled. And if nothing else, it was great. Just those guys suck. Because those like, guys suck. Thank you for jumping in and playing Liberty Roads because that would have. Yeah, that was good time. Oh, that was a blast. Uh, but it, it's it's nice to just if nothing else have a focal point and to go for four or five days, give myself an excuse to take off and play war games straight. Yeah, I had met I had kind of met Doug at GMT West and I you know I kinda of like, hey, what's up, hey, we were there, blah blah blah. And then uh but I actually got to talk to Doug while I was at Constant World. He's actually a good guy. So there you go, Doug. I try. Good for you. Thank you. I try. <laughs> you never know. He's a, he's a keeper. Usual. You do you we'll, really we'll never know. Because like the at Constant World I got stuck in a couple of games with guys where it was like, how do I extricate myself from this? And just having a group of guys who you know and, and 
can talk to beforehand makes all the difference. Yeah, the and shows. we went to we we would go to lunch. We went to meals together. That was cool. We would talk about stuff, and like we would be playing a game occasionally. A guy would come and be like, "Hey, what are you guys doing?" And you'd be like, "Uh huh, all right, keep moving." Yeah, like get varmint, get, mm-hmm. get yeah. the fuck out of here because you're clearly yeah. a weirdo. <laughs> you and then at some point we clear up my lawn. The side rooms with all of our just Oh yeah, that was so. So that was cool. We, we I, I, though I, so while I had met Doug, I think the first time I met you, Braxton kind of kept you all to himself. Uh, <laughs> and then at Constant World, I got a chance to actually sit down and talk to you. Maybe I think we talked when uh, I was set up the Laboratory game with Campbell. Uh, so yeah, we got a yeah, chance just, to sit down when finally yeah. Braxton wasn't around, where Doug was free from his chain, so he could actually talk. To him. <laughs> Well, I think at GMT, the only thing, the only time you and I had to interact was when we played that game of Here I Sit, and you were the Ottomans, and I was the French, and we had no reason to interact with each other. Yeah, I was and, trying to, I was trying to subvert uh, Lucas the entire time. So, <laughs> come to the dark side, Lucas. Yeah. So, uh, are you going to GMT West? I am not able to go to GMT West, but I am coming to Game On in Seattle. Yeah, I will be at I will be at, G- will be at GMT oh, West, so I'll be so there in October. So. Yeah, I just can't. I can't make GMT West work. Unfortunately, and then I will also be going to Game On in February. So we'll all see each other there. That's where we raise the battle flag. Game On is Game, Game on. on is in uh, February. It's near the Super. Yeah, it's February. Only a pack of yeah. fucking war gaming mm-hmm. nerds would put a gaming convention on the same weekend as the Super Bowl. But whatever. Okay. Yeah, let's I hope know. it's not in, in Seattle at a holiday. Uh, 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 let's hope it's not in the Seattle's. And for a lot of reasons, let's hope the Seahawks aren't in the Super Bowl. Uh, but yes, yeah, so oh, Super Bowl weekend in February next year. We'll be there. Uh, a lot of guys are going there from the guild, and uh, I think we've got about ten percent of the membership attendees at the con are actually from the guild. So at least a, I was going to say, don't aren't we up to like fifteen people? It's pretty that solid. Yeah, well, that makes it sound smaller, Doug. I was trying to build up the whole thing. Ten percent sounded my a lot bad. more impressive. <laughs> but at GMT West too, we usually have a pretty good showing too. So on GMT West on the Guild page, uh, if guys listening to the the podcast haven't heard about the Guild, we've got a Guild on BGG, and uh, we actually have games set up that we've already kind of set up with each other, so we can kind of play with each other without playing. Don't play with strangers. Play with people you know. Right. Don't play with strangers. That's, that's like stranger danger. <sighs> Nothing. And don't let strangers play with you. Stranger danger been truer than in wargaming. Which, <laughs> that totally that totally happened to Lucas at GMT. Oh, West. seriously. He and I set up Twilight Struggle, and we were like kind of getting ready, and this guy comes up and he starts talking to Lucas about what he should do, and then he just sort of sits down and starts playing his hand. And next thing I know. I'm playing this other guy. I'm not playing Lucas anymore. It was the it was the strangest Ugh. interaction. The whole time we're like looking at him, going like, "Who's gonna say like what the heck are no, you they, doing?" You have to aggressively into it. It's like cancer surgery. You have to be aggressive. You have to get in there and root out the evil right away. <laughs> Neither Lucas nor I were aggressive. Yeah, early and polite. You have to be like, "Hey, fuck face. Seriously, get the fuck out of here." Like you have to be like, "Leave now. Get the fuck out. Don't." Yeah, you have to kick them out right away because they get. will ooze into the game. He totally, he totally oozed into the game. At least I kicked his ass. So I don't well, yeah, so so GMT West, we've got guys going. So if you're in the California nice. area or the West Coast area, uh, feel free to go there. It's October, late October, GMT West. So Mitch Land, Ralph Shelton, a bunch of us will be there. Jason won't be there because he has a small child. So is this going to be an excuse I hear for I have a long new time? Dependent. Or is this It's going to be like... I, I would assume so. Just just kind of buckle in for the baby. So six for the months. Next, like, that's six it. months. I would I would assume. 
<clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's that's plenty. I might even try for game on. I don't. Six, I, honestly, six months I don't seems okay, but it's just going to be like an eighteen-year commitment for me, where I'm going to have to deal with this. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. That yeah, if you can swim game on, there's a good group that's already in for game on. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Plus, apparently, yeah. you get to meet some yeah. guys that I got in the fights with at Concept World <laughs> Expo. They might be there too. So, well, whatever. We'll see them all up there. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. some jackasses on and the Ralph road. Talk prob- shit. Unfortunately, Ralph probably won't be, be sporting those awesome shorts that he had at Consum. Oh, I think he will. I think the short situations. I have a feeling Ralph's one of those guys that wears shorts tw- like 365 days a year. Yeah, he might be right. Okay, well, I have a game. Oh, first, before I do my game, I wanted to mention, too, uh, Senor Magneto's Kickstarter. And I can't believe you guys didn't mention this. Oh, yeah. Jesse, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesse has a Kickstarter. I was getting married to my notes. There. It's a really good Kickstarter. It's called Counter Magnets for the 21st Century. He's a guild member. And basically, Jesse made these awesome uh, counter holders for guys who want to do like the, the vertical magnetic maps on your wall uh, where you can just leave them up and they stack on top of each other and they flip. And he's got a whole uh, video like on his Kickstarter where you can look and see. Uh, the different types and how to use them, and I don't know. You guys have anything you want to say about it? It's slick. I just don't know that I have space to put up that kind of stuff, but they're really cool. When he's done. Yeah, I probably won't ever use them, but I'm in for like sixty bucks. They're they're super cool. Even so, I backed it at a at a place where I can get some counter magnets and then get the sleds. I think the sleds are super cool, and I know I'll use those. So to get to get an add-on pack of you know five or ten. So you don't think you would use the worth it? You, but I know you don't I know think you would use like the a, counter magnets, but you would use the sleds. Yeah. What the fuck would you use the sleds? Yeah, for? yeah. I'm getting the counter magnets though, just in case. They're not magnetic. You just sit them on the table. So instead of having a stack flat, what like across your map? Um, no, they, they, it's basically like the size of a counter, um, but it has like a, a slanted base to it, um, that the, that the counter sit on top of. No, I, I, I understand you don't, you don't know what I'm talking the, about. the sled is where you can put a bunch of counters into it, right? Yeah, I'm actually looking at it right like now. Like it makes it, it's like a, basically yeah. like a ready-made stack. It like, yeah, it's like a tray it. that you stack them on. Do you have it perpendicular mm-hmm. yeah. to your game table? Yeah. Yeah, they would just sit on the game table. So instead of having a, a, a stack of counters, they, they sit on that. And then there's a little fog of war. Uh, you don't have to worry so much about you know knocking stuff over. So is you <laughs> don't don't hate on, on my passion. So I, I, I want these things, magnetic? man. <laughs> I don't believe so the ones what's I'm the getting value are of this? What's the value um, of the sled as they just, opposed they to just, just sit on the table. stack? Just the, the, the fog of war. Be- you can't yeah, I think it makes them a little easier to handle, you know, so you don't have to squeeze her as much in between a bunch but, of right, Jason, you know, tall stacks it's of the fog of war, but yeah. fog of war is only on the top part of the stack, right? 
Well, yeah, but but so you can you can actually turn that. Oh, I see. You. No, you're not. I'm th- I'm thinking about the long extended ones where you can put all the counters on. You're talking about the little props where oh, you no, can no, stick no, the no, guy no. up no. so he's mm-hmm. the counter sits on the edge of it. Oh, I see. Like with the Zuck exactly. with the Zucker right. NLB games where they had like the, the little stands yep. for the counters. It turns them into blocks, basically. Right. Yeah. Where the yeah. other guy can't see. I see. Exactly. That's why I thought you were talking about yeah, the so long, extended ones. I'm like, how the fuck does that help you at all? All right. So once oh, again, it's yeah. my fault. They misunderstand. It's all my fault. Yeah. I am going to back it, it, but I have to. Is this your first Kickstarter? <laughs> 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 well, it's still it. it oh, only really? charges yeah, on, exactly. on the yeah. day it charges anyway. If you back it today, I'm actually I'm doing it right now. That shows how much I know. But how much you doing it for, Doug? I went at the sixty-five dollar level. You cheap, you cheap fucker, dude! Like two fifty. There you, you go, Jesse. Nice. Wow. Oh, that's plenty. <laughs> two fifty. Move a couple of velvet well done, paintings Jesse. out of the way, and you got plenty of room. Just you got it right there on the wall. <laughs> I, I think it. I think it's interesting too that Doug's claims he has doesn't have enough vertical room in his gaming room for the games. It's really more where do I store a big piece of you know aluminum it's or on, metal it, like it, it goes it, onto your wall mm-hmm. you drill it yeah, into your I, wall. I don't have any walls that are built for I don't, that. Yeah, I don't have exactly. Any I have windows in like it just there's it would have to go into a closet after I get done sort of messing around with it because there's no place to put it. Yeah, I mean my problem is I have enough gaming space where I don't really need a game on my wall but I'm kind of like eh, fuck it I'll just buy it. <laughs> just like, right. Jesse's selling it. I know it's going to be yeah, pretty it's, good. It's the coolest, but yeah. I have looked at it before because when I used to be into World and in Flames, not that I've ever played World and Flames, but I saw guys who had these big giant World and Flames games, and I own I own the game, but they have it up on their walls. So I was like, oh, that is fucking cool to have the whole game up on your wall. So I'd always do research to try to figure out, like, hey, how can you? Yeah. Do they have those kinds of magnets? And they have the, the, to find out that he's making that stuff, and the fact that they flip perfectly and they stack on top of each other—I mean, it's an awesome. It's it's a much needed project. Yeah, see, I would use it for games I solo without having to constantly yeah. tear it up and put it like you just know, slide it into like behind a cat or a closet or somewhere you know where I wouldn't otherwise keep it up. I would just tear it down and never put it back up again. Mm-hmm. So if I back- yeah, they're super slick. And there, there was a big dearth of these things, you know, like or a big dirge of these things for a while. Like everyone was like, "Hey," and you know, oh, those I know, like all the ones old ones for right. so much money on eBay. And these, yeah, and yeah, his these, are nice. These are I mean, they relatively. Like, they seem like they're not going to fuck up counters. Yeah, they're and they work super well. No, they don't. I, I, um, he he sent me some sample packs, and I gave them out at Constant World, and um, I I put some of my counters from. Um, Liberty Roads in there, and you could take them out, put them back in, and they're they're great. They stack super well. Yeah, so it's a Kickstarter counter magnets from the twenty first century. So go check it out. There you go, and and it's cheaper too if you want to assemble them yourselves. So he offers two different versions. So okay, so uh, we're getting near the two hours. Nice. So let me go, and then we can all. Go drink, and Jason can go edit this podcast because that's what he does. To do the real work, <laughs> impressive. Okay, so my game that I'm going to review for this podcast <laughs> is Fallen Eagles. 
it's Napoleon 1815 Fallen Eagles by Hexa Sim. It's uh, about the uh, campaign of Waterloo, the Battle of Waterloo, and it's $55 or your it's actually 55 euros. I don't I don't know what that converts to. So sorry. Kind of Really? Okay. So, I don't Probably think I paid about that 70 much bucks. For it, but good luck. Actually, the euro, the euro is like a buck oh five, a buck ten. It's really low right now. There you go. So, uh, from an oh, artistic nice. perspective, By the game's great. Gorgeous maps. The counters are really nice. Uh, it's easy to identify the different commands that are in the counters because the, they have used very good colors. So it's very clear as to which which uh, leaders belong to which commands, and and uh, they've they've done a really good job with the art. I think Hexasim in general is usually pretty solid as far as art goes. Uh, the scale is regiments and brigades on the table. Uh, command scale, uh, the commands for units that you're going to be moving around are com- cores for the French and Prussians and divisions for the Brits. And it also comes with a really nice playbook that in addition to having the scenarios and uh, designer notes has really great examples of play in color that look exactly like the way the counters look, that really walk you through uh, the different situations that can come up during the game, which is incredibly helpful because I cannot tell you how annoying it is to get these games that don't have that stuff. Every game should do this. Every game should do this. Yeah, and so the interesting thing about this game is when you start to look at it, if you've played any of Zucker's games, like Napoleon at Leipzig or any of these, you start to notice that it's very familiar. It seems very similar to those games. And it is basically, I think, heavily based on Zucker's design. But instead of being, I, I forget what it's called, like it's the LNB series, like Lightberry and Napoleonic Battles or the NLB. It's been around for like 25 years, except when you play it, you feel like you're the first playtester to ever actually pick up the rule set. Like, I, I owned the Napoleonic Leipzig game that Zucker made back in the 70s or 80s. I bought the recent one and I felt like I had barely advanced that time you know i mean like 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 i had basic rule questions like how do cavalry charges work you know just stuff like and then they would they say oh we just updated the rules to show this i'm like has anyone played this game like i feel like i'm the only person that's playing the game this set is basically a uh a polished tested finished version of what those games should have been so the, the designer, while he gives a lot of props to Zucker's games and a lot of the games out there, he's very aware in the designer's notes about the other alternatives when it comes to Waterloo. It's very clear that this game was, was, was well run through the paces as far as trying to figure out rules issues. So it's a big relief coming from the Zucker game, which feels very familiar, to this game, which has is, is basically been, been finished. I'll just put it that way. So... Familiar, but refined. Yeah, it's just like it's the way the game should have been. Like where you, yeah, it doesn't feel like as you're playing when the Zucker game I play it, I feel like I'm winging it. <laughs> like at points, like okay, I don't really know what we're supposed to do here. So, um, so basically, you've got counters, and like I said, the counters are regiments and brigades. They're rated for uh, strength, which would be size or fire factor. Uh, they have a second rating for quality, which is basically their quality factor, which is their morale or their training, and then movement. And that's it. There's three factors on every unit, and that's all you need to know about the unit. So you have cavalry units, you have infantry units, and you have artillery units. Then you have leaders and commanders. Leaders have a uh, an initiative rating, which is basically what you need to roll to get them to do something, to activate, with two dice. And then they have a leader factor, 
which is basically what they add to like a combat or maybe a, a morale check. They add that to the quality factor of the unit they're with. So it's pretty standard. Um, and then you have commanders who have who have the same abilities, except commanders are kind of like your army commanders. So you have leaders over corps, and then you have army commanders like Wellington and Napoleon who can do other things. Um, so I mentioned they have quality ratings. Quality is going to determine how well they rally, whether they check morale. Um, also, sometimes units can operate independently when they aren't being commanded. If you enroll their quality, they can do independent type of orders. And also in melee, when they go to fight other units, units that are really good in melee will have an advantage over, or really good in quality will have an advantage over units that are poor in quality when they're really getting down the bayonets and getting into melee. The, uh, the activation sequence is kind of interesting. Uh, each player basically rolls to see who gets to go first for an activation. The winner rolls to activate a leader. If he is unable to activate a, that leader, then he goes to the next leader, tries to activate that leader, and basically goes through his leaders trying to activate him. If he successfully activates a leader, he moves all his guys and then does what's called an end-of-turn roll, where you roll a number based on the turn level. There will be a number, and uh, basically there's two end-of-turn numbers. The first is the starting number. The second is the finishing number. So the first time after the end of an activation, if you roll higher than that number, you flip over to the finishing number. And on the second completed activation, at the end of that activation, if you roll over that finishing number, the turn ends. So while technically each formation, each commander, or each leader can activate two times in a turn, it's possible for the turn to end early because you failed two end-of-turn rolls. So you guys get that? Sort of. I, I, yeah, so I, I don't know if I did a good job of explaining it, but yep. basically, so, so basically you have an end-of-turn roll that you have to make at the end of each successful activation of a, of a formation. And if you fail the end-of-turn roll twice in a turn, the turn ends, whether or not everyone's gotten to go. So, <clears throat> so turns don't have a finite length. It's, it's, it's an indeterminate length for the turn. Turns can end early if you're unlucky on end of turn rolls, or, or you could be successful, and then activations can go back and forth from player to player, and uh, units can activate, formations can activate several times during a turn. And in fact, a formation can actually activate twice. A, a commander can activate twice uh, during a turn, but never twice in a row. So it'll just bounce back and forth between formations. How often does that happen? Like, how easy is it to make that turn? Like, like some turns will be like, you might have a turn where it's the, the starting number is a nine. So if you roll a nine or higher, I think it's a nine or higher, uh, then, but you just flip it. So if you roll, if it's the starting number, it, that's your first failure. You flip it and then the guy gets to go. The second time it comes around now, the, the second number might be a 10. Oh, right. Yeah, or, it's okay. So it gets harder. Right, if you make or, the first one. Usually, actually, it's the other way around. Usually, it's harder, I think, the first time. like the, So it's hard to end a turn early. Like, it might be a 10 and then a 9. So the 10 might be the starting early, the starting end of turn. And the 9 might be the ending, finishing end of turn. So it's hard to have the turn end really early. But once you fail that roll, it's easier to have the second failure. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's kind of a okay. mechanism... Basically, it's set up so that um, while units activate, at the end of every activation, you have to check to see if the turn's going to end. And if you fail twice, the turn ends, whether or not everyone's gone. 
So you can never guarantee that you guys are going to be able to go. And right, it creates a little unpredictability, but it's not so uh, punishing to the other side that they just keep going over and over. And right, over. and and it, and the, the activations do alternate between side one player to another player, back to the other player, back to the other player. So so you do have that, but it's kind of cool because you never really know which formation is going to be able to activate because the player British player might be like, I really want to activate this unit. This formation, he rolls the leader, he fails. So then he, try, he has to try to roll a different leader. And then he has to try to roll a different leader. If he gets through all his guys, then it goes to the other player. It goes to the French player. So it, do, the lead, do the leaders affect that roll? That's where their initiative number comes in. So they have oh, an okay. initiative number yeah. and basically a modifier number, which is their leadership factor. So their initiative might be an eight. So on two dice, you got to roll an eight or less to get that leader to, and then once he activates, every unit within six hexes of him can react to, can do their orders. So, is that clear? I don't know if I explained that well. Yeah, right. I think I got, got it. it. It might be one of the yep. more complicated. Yep. It might be yeah, one of the cool. more complicated parts of the game. I like systems because like this is not a complex game. Just getting into it, I'll say if if you're interested in getting into Napoleonics and. Uh, you like Waterloo, this is probably a great entry game for you because this game is basically a game that's designed to make you play Napoleon. You're not concerned with what's going on with the bottom units. While you have regiments on the table, they are not your concern. Whether they're forming square or column or line, this game doesn't worry about what formation those units are in. Yeah, actually, I picked up a copy when I got Victory Roads. I threw it in figuring I'm paying to ship all the stuff from Europe. So I have a copy and I haven't even printed it. Yeah, so, um, so once you activate your guys, then you can move them. Well, first you have offensive fire. So you have units that can shoot. And one of the interesting things is when your guys shoot, artillery can fire four hexes, infantry can fire into units that are adjacent to them. But if a unit fires, you put a counter on it that says three movement points. So after offensive fire, you then move your guys. And if a unit wants to move through that hex, it has to pay three movement points because the guys in that hex fired already. So it's basically like they already got in their way. So it creates like a barrier for movement by firing in your own turn. So if you're doing an attack, you might want to fire on one side and then move guys to attack on the other side. So it's kind of a neat thing. I'd never seen that in a game before where they had actually had a counter to put down to show that, hey, if, if if units want to move through this hex, it's going to slow them down because these guys are firing. So I thought that was kind of cool. No, that's cool. Uh, out of command units, you might have guys that are out of the, the six hex range of the uh, leader. They just have to roll their quality factor. Whatever their, you know, their morale might be eight or nine or seven. If they roll it, they can move half. If they fail it, they can move one hex. Uh, if you want to disregard your current orders and do something else, you just have to roll your quality factor. And then once you get into melee, you're basically, if you're adjacent to an enemy unit, you can mark them with melee markers to do melee attacks. And then that gives your, uh, your opponent opportunities to like do uh, opportunity fire at you or defensive fire uh, based on who's marked for melee. And uh, once all that's your melees, go to the end of turn check. And that's when you're going to check to see, is the turn going to end? Am I going to fail the starting ending roll or the finishing ending roll? And then you go to the next activation of your unit. So that's basically the entire activation sequence. So basically you're doing offensive fire, you're doing movement, you do melee, and then uh, defensive fire, and end of turn check. That's it. 
Oh, actually, you resolve the defensive fire before the melee, but you basically mark for the melees, hmm. and then you do all the defensive fire. Uh, getting into some of the dirty details, basically, uh, uh, end of turn, you have uh, rear movement, so where units that are back in the rear areas that aren't near enemy units can then move, so you can move around formations in your rear, um, and that's when routers would move. Routers might move from combat. Um, you can stack units, so you have what's in combat. You have what's called a lead unit, and that's going to determine the quality for the stack. It's basically the unit that's in the front. It's also the unit that's going to take the first loss because they're basically the first guys that are up there. And you can switch them around during combat if they take a loss. You can switch another unit to be the lead unit. There are zones of control. Infantry and artillery will stop in the enemy zone of control, but. Cav can actually move through enemy zones of control, so that gives Cav kind of advantage to move around the flanks. Uh, one of the interesting things about artillery is if it's going to move into an enemy zone of control, it's got to be stacked with infantry. So, uh, Another cool part about this game is the way orders work. They actually have an order sheet that's like a, a copy of the map board. It's like a, basically like a normal page, and um, you have orders for each formation, and the map for Waterloo is divided up into zones with geographical, geographical objectives in each zone. And you have, you have order markers for each uh, command, like first corps, second corps, third corps, and they're hidden. So you can put them on the map to give like your corps a geographic objective, or like you can put them in the defense area to give them a defense, or no orders to give them an order, and there's decoys you can lay out. So... Your, the orders that you've given your formations are actually secret uh, to the enemy. So they don't know, looking at your map board, where your orders are. But like the rules are generally like, if you say your geographic objective is uh, uh, Waterloo or whatever, uh, your guys have to move at least one hex towards Waterloo during their activation. And if your orders are defense... Defense is an interesting order because it means you're generally going to stay in the area that you're in. You can maybe move a hex or two, but what defense really does is when you give your guys an order of defense, it means like one of the arguments with the game that people have problems with is cavalry can attack infantry, but there's no forming square or anything like that. Well, when you have a defense order, your infantry gets a bonus versus cavalry that, that attacks them because it's assumed that in a defensive posture and they're generally in square. Yeah. Just abstract. Exactly. So thing. normally if yeah. cavalry were to attack infantry in the open, they get a, a one uh, shift or a minus one die roll modifier for their attack, which is good for them. But if you're on defense orders, they don't get that. But if you shoot artillery at a unit that's in defense orders, you get a bonus. Because the idea is, again, they're already kind of trying to form squares and trying to get dense. So I thought that was pretty cool with exactly. the orders. It's a very cool way to do orders where you can That's set cool. out where, and one of the interesting parts is you can't give guys a new order until your leader is within 15 hexes of the next objective. So uh, when, when I look at the battlefield on the order map, there's 20 zones. Each zone has a objective in the center of it. So you say that, that objective is my, my, that's my objective I'm going for. Your leader has to be within 15 hexes of that zone to declare that as his next objective. So each turn you try to change the orders. You, you guys might move and capture one objective, they get to the objective. Then you have to, in the order phase, try to change the objective for that, that command to get them to go on to the next one. So, so if you water some unit outside of command range, 
they get stuck with whatever order they had. Well, well, had at well. That remember, point. I mentioned that you can have independent commands, so um, okay. units can try to roll their own quality factor to a. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not scolding you, Doug. This has been a long dissertation yeah, on these rules. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but if you can do like independent commands where units can roll their own quality factor, so better units can operate outside orders. And do, so it's similar to great battles in the American Civil War, where you can have guys outside of the range, but they may or may not do what you want them to do when you give them a look. Yeah, depending on their quality, which is basically not only yeah. a reflection of their quality, but a reflection of their, their leadership. You know, they have, the, they have the regimental commanders who are smart enough to know what needs to be done in a crunch. Yeah. Exactly. So the other thing, so so okay, so you, so I mentioned the orders, so it, it, you know, it's a pretty, pretty. At this point, it's a pretty generic game. It's the units are fighting with each other, they're shooting at each other. You have melee, you get locked in zones of control. Um, the commanders are kind of cool because so you have these, you have leaders who are basically, like I said, they can activate two their formations twice a turn, never twice in a row, but you're never sure if they're going to get to activate them. Uh, Twice, because you don't know when the turn's going to end. The turn might end suddenly after an activation. But then you have the commanders, like Blucher and uh, and Wellington and Napoleon. And they have, and I think Ney, too, is a commander. They have special orders, special abilities. So they get the same two activations. And basically, there's markers, too. So when a leader gets one activation, there's an activation one marker you put on him. And then when he gets his second, there's an activation two marker. So you know you can't activate the guy anymore. Um so uh, commanders can do emergency order changes. So in the middle of a turn, they can change an order. They can rally four stacks of units, try to get them back into action. They can do a free activation as if the units are independent units. So Blucher can ride up and get three stacks of Prussians and be like, charge, you know, beyond what they were supposed to do and just get them to go do things up to his leadership limit. And he can do that twice. One of them is a limit to one, but. So basically, the commanders supplement the leadership abilities of their, their officers. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of optional rules and, and special rules that make the game feel more like Waterloo. There's rules for French Guard, Imperial Guard route panic. There's special events that can happen during combat, like captured colors, lost leaders. There's weather. There's rules you can put in for facing. There are four scenarios in the game. Uh, one is a very the assault on Chukamath, and then there's Derlon's charge attack, and then there's uh, the Prussians coming in, and then there's the big Waterloo battle. The, the nice thing, though, is there's also alternate history cards for the scenarios. So if you want to play Waterloo, there's like six alternate history cards that will change the way the battle fights. So it's not, it's not yeah, like yeah. just because you have the Waterloo scenario um, – uh, that that's going to be the way it goes. The other cool thing I thought is, and they're like, hey, uh, like Napoleon, one of them might be Napoleon is good in this battle, but it changes the victory conditions, you know, and uh, they don't know when you're going to play the card, really. The other cool thing about it is, it's hard for me to keep my push to talk going while I'm doing this, but there's 10 tactical cards that come with the game. I don't know what you're talking about, Dave. I did yeah, right, perfect. Right. There's, <laughs> there's, there's 10 tactical cards that come in the game, and this is part of the basic game system. Um, and basically, the 10 tactical cards at different points will give you different advantages in the game when you want to play them. At the beginning of the game, you lay them out face up, and the players alternate choosing them. 
And during the game, you can play them. Like some are like ignore a leadership casualty or ammo shortage. Like the guy thought he was going to do a shot on you and you do an ammo shortage on him that reduces his shot or whatever. There's 10 of them. Really good, interesting plays. But the cool thing about it, or making him re-roll a die, the cool thing about him is once the guy plays it, he has to give you the card. And then you can hold on to it because you don't want him to have it again. So while oh, you guys, cool. while you guys pick your, that's while cool. you guys yeah. pick your five it's cards, card. each pick five cards. When you play it, you have to decide: Do I want the guy to have this card? Because some of them are like, no more ammo. I mean, there's a bunch of really good cards here. Uh, avoid fate. Result of any die rolls canceled and the dice are re-rolled. Smoke of War. Any one defensive or opportunity fire gets a plus two die roll modifier. Heroic Leader. Rally. You know, they're just... They've even got some blank ones that you can write your own stuff on if you want to. Uh, but the tackle cards I thought were very cool because they do add that kind of question of what's going to happen. And, and there is a point where you might want to freeze a card and get it and hold on to it and be like... Yeah, I'm not letting you. I'm not playing this card because I don't want you to have the card. So, so great game. I thought it was really good, uh, especially for what it does. It, it's not complicated, and I think it'll give you a good feel. You do have to pay attention to the order restrictions, but I think they, it was very cool how they used the order sheet, like in kind of like each basically each player has this map where he puts his order counters on to keep track of what his orders are. Uh, I thought it was very cool. I hadn't seen it before, so. Big props. That sounds cool. Yeah. Do you guys have any questions? Or at this point, are you guys ready to go? Yeah. No, it sounds pretty straightforward. I like. I like when they do. Yeah, so this game is below leverator in uh, complications. I think it's like for a complicated aspect, it's pretty basic. I think it's probably a th I'd say out of one to ten, I'd say it's probably a three or four. Like if you're a beginner, it's way to go. And uh, the chits pop right out. They they got their side clipped. So, which again, that's a whole other thing because I would have rather I could clip them. But but, uh, but at least if you're not a clipper guy and you're a beginner, it's nice. You can just pop them right out. And so uh, I prefer corner clipping, but whatever. Let's not get into that argument. <laughs> No, they really Oh, and they come with whole sheets of like, Their all the counters, solid. like all organized according to the OOB. Nice color sheets. The terrain chart's great. Everything's really nice. Top line. It, like their stuff is always. Yeah, if you were going to get a game and say, "Hey, I want to, I want to check out Waterloo," I'm not really experienced with Napoleonic games. This is absolutely the one to get. It's very cool. And the, and the rules are tight. I, I went through the BG because I'm into now. Now I'm going to try nice. to be more professional about my reviews sometimes. So I actually went through BGG and looked at some of the rules questions. And uh, most of them I thought were pretty lame. So most of them I thought were pretty easily explained within the rules. So yeah, that's a good way of, of yeah. That's a good yeah, way if you actually read the rules. The rules have been properly drafted. Yeah, and written. right. If there's a slur a slew of Rules questions on BGG, you know that. Yeah, if you go in there, there's tw there's 28 pages of rules postings, and the game's been out yeah, for like four yeah, months. Exactly. Time, so, is it totally <laughs> friendly? Are the rules sort of friendly for? Yeah, I think so. The only yeah, because the, even though there there is opportunity fire, but opportunity fire actually ha happens after movement. So generally, what wow. happens is, and I'm trying to remember a little bit because I played it a couple weeks ago, but um, when you're shooting. Uh, when units commit to melee against other units because they're adjacent to them, non-meleeed units then opportunity fire them if they're adjacent. And then 
defensive fire is guys shooting at guys who are trying to melee them. So that's kind of how the firing works. So yeah, I, I don't think yeah. it's one of those where you have to stop your movement. That's that's usually always the killer for for play yeah. by email where you have to stop something while the other guy gets to go. I don't think it's that way with this game. So yeah, I think it's friendly. Cool. I don't know if the module exists. So. I was going to ask you. If I'm already trying to get Duck to do the uh, Labrador one for for Waterloo. Mm, that would yeah. be great. I would love. To yeah, that'd be great. That. Encourage him to do that because I basically. I geek mailed him again, and he's like, yeah, I haven't done anything with it. <laughs> he was on sabbatical for like 10 years. I know, I know. Plus, now he's not used to working. That's the problem. <laughs> Plus, production at his work has gone up 5,000% yeah. since he's been gone. So now I think he's feeling yeah. some pressure. <laughs> Get it done, Doug. That's all I got, man. I was sick yesterday. I'm glad you guys let me. <laughs> today because I was sick as a dog. Cool. So. Not no worries. Yeah. Glad you're feeling better. I got nothing right, else. Well, well, I'm good. Right, yeah. Bye bye. Have a good bye. one, guys. Bye. Visit us at http colon slash slash boardgamegeek.com slash build slash one six six zero or contact us at advance after combat at gmail.com. Just like me. And the cats in the cradle and the sand.